Hey, what's up, friends? Hi, what's going on? This episode of the podcast is brought to you by LegalZoom. LegalZoom is a fantastic way for you to deal with legal issues online. You can do all sorts of shit like form an LLC, form a corporation, establish a last will and a living trust. And now with National Small Business Month at LegalZoom.com, you, you, any person right now, you don't have to buy anything. You can go to LegalZoom.com and download a free business startup kit. Mmm, LegalZoom's free business startup kit is loaded with resources to help you succeed, like educational ebooks and LegalZoom discounts that'll save you money setting up your businesses. Plus, you can save thousands through LegalZoom's partner offers to help with financing, marketing, and day-to-day operations, things that you'll absolutely need for your business to thrive. Um, LegalZoom is not a law firm. And because of that, you save money because they offer you their services at a one-time fee. It's not an hourly rate. And they're dedicated to making life easier for business owners. There's no obligation. If you want to download this National Small Business Month free business startup kit. Too many S's in that. Hear my extra S's? What the fuck is wrong with me? Um, there's no obligation. You get it for free. Go to LegalZoom.com forward slash startup during the final week of National Small Business Month to download your free business startup kit. But you got to hurry. There's only a few days left to take advantage of this exclusive offer. That's LegalZoom.com forward slash startup. We're also brought to you by the Black Tux. The BlackTux.com. They they deliver high-quality rental suits and tuxedos right to your doorstep. And the Black Tux is giving guys a new way to rent. And get this, the Black Tux offers free home try-on so you can see the fit and feel the quality of your suit months before your event. If you've got to go to a wedding or some sort of special event, it's never been easier than right now with the Black Tux and it's completely done online. No trips to the tux shop required. The blacktux.com lets you create your look and choose from tons of stylist selected outfits starting at just $95. These suits have a modern fit. They're made from fine Italian wool, the highest quality on the rental market, and if you have any suggestion, excuse me, questions, if you have any questions or issues, their expert customer care team has your back through every step of the way. After ordering, your suit will arrive 14 days before your event. That's two full weeks to try it on, make sure everything fits. If anything is less than perfect, the Black Tux will send you a free replacement right away. So when your event's over, you just drop your rental back in the mail. Shipping is free both ways. How easy is that? To get $20 off your purchase, visit theblacktux.com forward slash Rogan. That's theblacktux.com forward slash Rogan for $20 off your purchase. Do, 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 do. And last but not least, we are brought to you by Lyft. That's L-Y-F-T. If you don't know what Lyft is, Lyft is a ride-sharing application. And when you drive for the right ride-sharing application, every trip can feel like a walk in the park. With Lyft, you can pick your own hours when you want, and Lyft can make driving the best job in the world. It's, it's a fantastic thing if you're looking for some extra money to pick up on the side, because you can do it whenever you want. It's completely on your time. 
So if you're a person that's a student or maybe you're uh, looking to pick up some money in your free time and you want flexible hours, Lyft is the way to go. It's, it's a really easy way to make some extra money. And Lyft is a company that treats their drivers very well. Only Lyft offers in-app in application tipping. So when you drive for Lyft, you get to keep 100% of the tips. Drivers have been paid over $150 million in tips since the feature was introduced. Express Pay lets drivers get paid almost instantly instead of waiting for weeks. Lyft has even taken care of the guesswork out of pickups. The new AMP device uses color coding to help passengers find their drivers. You can earn hundreds of dollars a week plus tips, and you want to make more money? Just drive more. It's never been easier to give yourself a raise. It's a simple formula. Happy drivers mean happy passengers, and maybe that's why 9 out of 10 Lyft rides get a perfect 5-star rating. So... Join the ride-sharing company that believes in treating its people better. Go to Lyft, that's L-Y-F-T dot com forward slash Rogan today, and you can get a $500 new driver bonus. That's Lyft.com forward slash Rogan. Limited time only. Terms apply. Lyft.com forward slash Rogan. All right. My guest today is one of the most selfless and beautiful people I've ever met in my life. This guy's just an amazing human being. His name is Justin Wren. And Justin was a fighter in the UFC, and he was on The Ultimate Fighter, and went on a journey, a journey of depression and pain pill addiction, and ultimately came out of it as an activist in the Congo, building water wells for the pygmies, and found a, really like a second family there. And has worked so hard to work with water4.org to create these wells for the pygmies and help them grow food and help them build farms there. It's just, we're going to get into all that in the story. And he's now fighting for Bellator and um, he is on a three fight win streak. He just, just came back after five plus years of being out of the sport and is dedicating um, really essentially this, this goal, this mission of winning the heavyweight championship. Uh, to his fig, his pygmy family, and to try to to, to give people um, uh, a story and an understanding of what these people are going through, and he's just done an amazing job. He's just awesome. So, um, ladies and gentlemen, I present to you my friend Justin Wren. Joe Rogan podcast, check it out. The Joe Rogan Experience. Train by day, Joe Rogan podcast by night, all day. Boom, Justin Wren, straight out of the jungle. Look, you got coconut water. You ready to party? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you got two of them, just yeah. in case. Oh, I live off of that stuff. Um, so, first of all, congratulations on your Bellator fight, man. You looked outstanding. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Look, it's really like clicking, man. It's really coming together, huh? Yeah, finally the muscle memory is back, and uh, I'm at a new camp that's great for my style, training with Rafael Lovato Jr., uh, maybe the best American grappler uh, for BJJ, most accomplished, maybe. He's fantastic. Oh, yeah. good. You're, so you're in Oklahoma? Is that yeah. where he's at? Yeah, Oklahoma. Just moved there in December. So you moved there to train? Yeah, moved there oh, to train. Wow. And interesting. Train alongside him, and that's also where Water 4 is headquartered out of, oh, is Oklahoma City. How fucking convenient. Absolutely. So now I have the best of both worlds. My two passions right there. Uh, oh, that's amazing. Together. That's amazing. He's, he's really good, man. Yeah. 
Rafael Lovato has that pressure style too, the Salo Hibero yep. smashing style. Yep. Very fun to watch that guy. The only guy I've ever felt claustrophobic underneath, <laughs> without a doubt. He's just I can't I, I can't explain. You just cannot get away. That smash pass, that pressure pass. Yeah. He just melts into you, and there's no escape. It's like he's melting in. He's like glue. Yeah, Salo, Zhangji, the whole that whole family of that style of jujitsu, so powerful, man. Yeah, I've gotten to meet both of them now. Uh, Trained with Salo, and then Zhangji was there in uh, our corner, so it was pretty awesome for a Bellator fight having I those was guys kinda, there. I was kind of bummed out at Rafael Lovato's last fight because uh, he stopped him with strikes. I was yeah. like, God damn it! Yeah, kicked him in the head. Thirteen yeah. seconds. Yeah, it was crazy. I mean, it's great to see him succeed and do well, but I wanted to see his jujitsu. Oh yeah, know? absolutely. Striking's I think people really will, good. but he's man, he's an animal. Honestly, he's one of those guys that is so well rounded, and you think he's just one dimensional uh, because of everything he's done in jujitsu. But he grew up kickboxing. Oh, he did he really? Doing, yeah, his dad's been a lifelong martial artist, uh, senior. He's an incredible guy, and he's been taking Rafael all around the world since he was a little boy, uh, having him train mixed martial arts, not just jiu-jitsu his whole life. And he's fighting Bellator as well, right? Yeah, that was his first fight, so we fought back-to-back. He fought right before me. I fought right after him. Oh, that's nice, man. Yeah. Bellator's making some moves, man. You know, they're, they're doing Mitrione versus Fedor, mm. and they're going to—Lorenz Larkin just signed with them. Yeah. Roy McDonald signed with them. I mean, right. that's a stable now. They have a legit yeah. stable. Like especially their 170-pound division is super legit. Oh, yeah. Daily MVP. Lima. Yeah, Lima. Korshkov. Yeah. That's a serious division, man. And yeah. now Fedor. Very interesting. What did you think about the Fedor-Mitrione thing where they had to pull out? Like, Mitrione had to pull out because of his kidney stone. And yeah. then they're going to schedule it again, apparently. Mitrione's yeah, that's cleared. Madison Square Gardens. Yeah. So, June that's 24th. That's a pay-per-view, right? Pay-per-view. First one for Bellator. Pay-per-view's tough, man. It's yeah. tough to get people to buy something they've been getting for free. Right. And uh, But I think I think this card, they're, they're stacking it pretty heavily. Chael Sonnen versus Vanderlei. Yeah. That's yeah, a which, good fight. That's where Rafael has been going down into, I forget how to say it, but Curitiba. Curitiba, Brazil, yeah. Brazil, yeah. Down there and was sparring with uh, Vanderlei before his fight. Uh, sparring with Vanderlei is a fight, apparently. <laughs> yes. Apparently you're fighting. <laughs> yes. He sent me a meme of something like, let's train easy. Um, and Vanderlei saying like, yeah, train easy. But it's that picture of him in uh, Pride or something or maybe training where he's jumping in the air. And he's just coming down with a big hammer fist and going to land on you with his feet. Yeah. It's like, that's a light day. <laughs> he's kind of known for that, just being a barbarian 24-7. Yeah. But that's why he was so fun to watch. Yeah. And I think what you said and just asked uh, about what did I think between Fedor and Matt Mitrione when they had to pull out. Man, I, f- I flash back right away. So do you remember whenever Stefan Struve had to pull out um, of his fight with Mitrione backstage? And oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They were... He was like blacking out or something, right? Yeah, I think he passed issue. out a couple times and he was having that heart problem mm-hmm. as well. Uh, but Mitrione was back there all gloved up, already taped up, had his gloves on, was hitting mitts. And then there were some of the behind-the-scenes cameras that caught a moment where I believe it was Dana coming back there telling him the fight was canceled and Mitrione just was, you know cussing up a storm no way not at all no but then all of a sudden you saw it shift where all of a sudden he was worried about Stefan mm-hmm. and he walked down there went backstage or to his locker room and man he just hugged him and Stefan was sobbing and Matt Mitrione was just like you know hey it's all right bro I know if you could fight you would have and all that other stuff and so I guess he had passed at least one or two kidney stones the fight week oh, uh, maybe the, the couple days before weigh-ins um, and then the day of the fight, they just started coming back out. I think he had something like 15 or 20 ah! total. 
So, man, I, I know all the ladies out there, you, you're a lot tougher than us uh, giving birth, but I hear this is the equivalent, you know, for the men is passing a kidney it. stone. I doubt it. Yeah. That'd be like more like passing a marble through That's your dick true. hole, you know, <laughs> uh-huh. maybe even a golf ball. Mm. Seems like it's not even close. Yeah. It probably hurts. Definitely it, sucks. Yeah, it does. But that 15 or 20 of them, something like that, that would be brutal instead of just one or two. They are a uh, side effect of weight cutting for a lot of people, mm. right? Like, I know Aldo had one, yeah. and uh, I think some other fighters have had them, too, and they, they think it has to do, there's some sort of connection with massive dehydration, which I'm sure Matt doesn't have to worry about, you know, yeah. making, fighting heavyweight, he doesn't have to cut the weight like that, so I wonder what, what caused his. Yeah, I don't know, but yeah, exactly, I mean, you're putting so much, your kidneys through so much when you're mm. cutting weight, especially those extreme weight cuts. Yeah, fuck uh, that, Yeah, I, I, I'm lucky I'm a heavyweight, very yeah, fortunate. Yeah, dude, fuck all that, yeah. man. Yeah, like, what do you walk around at? Like, what's your... When you're in shape, like you're in shape right now, like what do you weigh? Yeah, I weigh two forty eight. That's a good size, so, man. Right, two forty five. Don't you think they they think that that two forty number is like the right number for heavyweights? They feel like, not, I don't know who they are. But I'm just talking shit. Yeah. But they think that um, the the conventional wisdom is when you get into two sixties and above, and you know, like above two fifty, that there's there's a point of diminishing returns where you're you're carrying around so much mass. He can't really perform as well, and, but a 240-pound guy is so big and so strong that you can handle a 265-pound guy, but you have more endurance, and it's just yeah. a better weight. I totally agree with that. I mean, when I was living at the Olympic Training Center and wrestling there, the weight class was 264.5 or 120 kilos, um, and we always tried to stay above it and then cut for the mm-hmm. to make weight. Because wrestling, I mean, being the single sport of wrestling, like, you need that weight. It's only a six-minute match. Right. Um, and then the new Greco-Roman rules, I mean, you get three breaks in between a two-period round. Yeah. Um, and so you're getting yeah, that weight. You need it to throw the guy around. When it comes to MMA, and you're adding in that, what is anaerobic, anaerobic strengths mm-hmm. and cardio and everything else. You need it all. And so, yeah, my first two fights back, I was coming in heavier. Um, and, man, to drop a little bit, I felt a lot lot better. My conditioning was, was on point. I wasn't rushing. I'd put in the time, the effort and everything else and got my cardio good. My diet really, Rafael's got an awesome strength coach. His name's Lucius Tyree. Now he's my guy from Green Strength. And man, he just got us on this warrior kind of lifestyle. It's not about a program or a fight camp and you getting ready then. It's about, hey, let's just live this in day in and day out, eat the right food, the real food, put real nutrition in your body real strength, kind of like the on it stuff, you know, the kettlebells, everything else. And I had never done that before. So, uh, this was a real shift in my training and, uh, it paid off. So he works with your nutrition as well. Yeah. And what kind of uh, changes has he made for that? Man, uh, for me, I think that, uh, it's about maturing too. I mean, the five years I took off. Um, and before that I was 19 fighting professionally until I was 23, 24, um, and I was young and dumb. I was dealing with addictions and depression, other stuff. And man, I would, I would, tighten everything up during fight camp but before fight camp i'd eat whatever um and this has just been you know having just tons of salads um eating meat veggies fruits just fueling your body constantly um and so that's just been something really good for me i, I have celiac so i can't eat the breads the grains oh you the, do yeah i can't eat wheat barley you're rye. a huge guy to have celiac yeah. that's interesting what did they find out when you were really young uh, no, uh, I found out, so I, I'd gone through the opiate addictions and I had six years of that, that I had an ulcer in my stomach. And so, uh, but I noticed that during that time, anytime I would eat wheat, wheat bread with breakfast that I would get uh nauseous. I would, uh, I would that just was during that time. Yeah. 
So did you so, have it before, or did you get it because of the ulcer? Um, I think that probably triggered something, um, the opiate addiction and everything else. Then when I went to Congo, it really got bad, and I didn't know what it was. And then whenever I got back, I mean, having the malaria three times, dengue fever, black water fever, um, all sorts of intestinal parasites and bacterias. Um, when I got back here, I was just wrecked. And so my wow. doctor did some tests on me and was like, man, you have, you aren't just any more gluten intolerant. Now you have full blown celiac and you're at the top of the chart. So you used to be gluten intolerant. Yeah. And then it became celiac top yeah. of the chart. celiac. Now, do you think anything has a connection to for people who have never heard you before you live in the Congo for long stretches of time working right. with the pygmies and digging wells and you've caught malaria there on yeah. two separate occasions, but you've got it three times because it re- recurred on you, right? right? Do you think that that might have compromised your immune system and yeah. contributed to the celiac disease? Yeah, absolutely. They say Fuck. that my immune system was just shot. And so that's been... I mean, so the five, I mean, before that, the drug addictions that took a toll on my body, then going to the Congo, having the malaria, having other things, it's, it's wrecked my body. And so now over the last three years, and that's why I am so thankful for a guy like Raphael modeling how to live this lifestyle, Mm -hmm. this just day in and day out. Lucia's there to guide us because I needed that. I really needed to rebuild my health from the ground up. Right. right. um, And to stay consistent with that. It's like when the fight's over maybe indulge for like one meal, but then get right back on the grind. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's been, yeah, really, really great for me to live it out and to really, I don't know, just felt like I'm finally healthy again. That's awesome, man. It's amazing you just come back after taking five years off and essentially not even working out at all. And now, you know, I mean, you look good in the first fight, but man, your last fight, you just really look tuned up. Yeah, thank you. It was awesome. I appreciate that. Now, when you you say that you have celiac, so they're they're adjusting your diet accordingly. Like what? Like I'm really big into like fat based diets these mm, days. Yeah. Are you doing something like that? Or are you on uh, d- different kind of carbohydrates? Like how are you? I'm, how I'm, are they monitoring it? I'm definitely getting a lot more, uh, a lot more like coconut oils and the grass fed butters and all that to to have a high fat content with every single meal, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I'm still dropping weight. And so that, I mean, this is kind of all new for me where it's like, man, I'm getting in a lot of fruits, veggies, carbs, and mostly fats, fats, then proteins, um, then fruits and vegetables, and then probably carbs. I mean, I know carbs are in fruits and vegetables, but. So do they plan your meals out for you? Do you have like one yeah, of those? I have a meal prep place in uh, OKC oh, that's nice. called uh, Provision Kitchen. And it's pretty awesome because they, um, they have their own farm. Everything's organic, locally grown. Um, And so, yeah, I just go in there and they're able to help me out. And Luke works with them and Lucius helps me know what I need to tell them to eat. And so it's just, for me, man, I I, I mean, being a heavyweight, um, a lot of times we haven't had to take a a diet too strict. Um, And other times I would during fight camp, but I would just do what I thought was right and what was fueling my body, what was feeling for good. performance. Yeah, for performance. Yeah. But now it's just like all around health and performance. Like I need to perform like a machine, like a professional athlete. I need I need to fuel my body like that. And so having this team of people that are around and I think that's why the move to Oklahoma City before coming back, having the five years off, then coming and uh, being in Dallas, Fort Worth and trying to rush back, then moving to Colorado, trying to get the camp there, train at six or seven different gyms, you know, cross train. Um, it wasn't really all clicking. But now being in Oklahoma City, there's Water 4 right there. There's Raphael's team, which he has world-class guys all around him. He's got the nutritionist and the right restaurants and places in place to where now I can just focus on training 
And then I get to, in the meantime, or break time, I get to share the story of why I'm back to fighting. That's amazing. Yeah. Now, this uh, meal prep place, do you give them like, hey, we, I would like my food to be, you know, 75% this, 25% that. This is the carbohydrate quantity I'm looking for. This is the amount of protein. So amount of calories, basically, and I, I don't know exactly. Um, I need to have a better like input into it, but man, they've just really said this is what he needs during fight camp, and then I was focused on training, and so mm. it, was, it was really good though because I'm getting you know a bunch of coconut oil and avocados and everything else all throughout the day to make sure I'm having the high fat content. And how many times do you eat in a day? Three to five. Three big meals if uh, if I'm not able, if I'm just swamped and busy, but then if I have time to make sure I'm fueling my body, I'm eating five meals. So are you so. working out twice a day or like how are you? Two to three times a day, five Sometimes to six three, days huh? a week. Yeah. Wow. Damn, dude. So, Back five, in the six. heat of things. Yeah, man. 100%. Raphael's a machine trying to keep up with him, but feeding off that energy. Um, it's been really great. I mean, because... It's, I've been around a lot of guys in the sport, and uh, I, I didn't even expect to talk this much about them, but it's, uh, it's been really encouraging. I've been around Kenny Mundy, Kendall Cross, Kale Sanderson, all these Olympic gold medalists, and it's been great because they were my coaches pouring into me. But here's a guy that's the best at his craft, that's world class, that's world champ, and he's completely obsessed with every aspect of MMA, and being able to see that and feed off of it mm. has been incredibly encouraging for me. So him and I both, we're like, hey, man, like the stars are aligning. This is destiny you and me both we're gonna go get those bellator straps world champs let's do that first and let's do that quick what does he weigh man he walks around at probably 210 215 um maybe 220 and what's he fighting at man he cuts all the way down to 185 um so he's the biggest 185 i've ever trained with jesus christ and he feels like he's 400 man i mean brendan and i were just talking about this yesterday um but being under shane carwin and worst case scenario where he's having you mounted i mean it just you hated life um, yeah. having big Shane on I'm you. I'm sure. Um, but there's something so uh, demoralizing, but then at the same time encouraging because uh, Raphael's doing that and making you feel claustrophobic like a 400-pound gorilla's on top of you um, or 600-pound, whatever. And then, but he's also coaching you, telling you how you can do that to somebody else. Mm. And so at the end of it, you know, he's, he's showing you how to do exactly what he's doing. So he's a fantastic coach and you don't always see that from the best athletes. Um, right. Sometimes they're, they're incredibly talented and great at their craft, but explaining it, you're like, okay, now explain it to me again or show me how to do it. Like, here, I'm showing you, like, just watch, you know, mm-hmm. but he can, he can tell you every little detail, every little inch. Well, that's uh, probably has a lot to do with the Salo Hibero lineage, mm. too, you know? That's a very, very technical school, and they're really involved. Salo's really involved in the, the history of all the, the different techniques and, you know, where they came from. And Now, why did he move to Oklahoma City? Why is he uh, down there? Uh, I actually, that's where he's from. So oh, no I think kidding. whenever he was like six, seven, eight years old, he moved from Chicago there. Um, I watched a documentary on flow grappling. That's how I even got a hold of Raphael. I was, knew I was moving to Oklahoma City. I'm like, who's there to train with? Uh, I'm moving there for Water 4 and Fight for the Forgotten. Um, and I saw that documentary. Incredibly inspirational. Shows the whole lineage of him training with Salo and Shanji and how he went to Brazil to train with them, live with them. How they came up to like Toledo, Ohio at first. He went there and they were living in basically like this little apartment that was freezing inside in the Toledo uh, winters and they're having to put their geese over the heater to try to warm them up after every training session to get back in there and do it again and that some of their best training matches were in the living room on the mat that they would throw out there right in front of the couch and so it's just cool to see how these guys were where where they came from and what they've done now it's like truly for me inspiring because that's what I want to do now 
No, I mean, that's the best way to do it, right? To just be with the elite of the elite in that one particular discipline, at least, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And yeah. I mean, you can get so much out of that, especially coming from your background as a wrestler. You right. know, I was super impressed with your arm triangle, too, man. Thanks. Clamped down on that head and arm choke. That was nice. Yeah, thanks a lot. Uh, <laughs> no, I think it's a great style because I'm coming in with a wrestling background. I've mm-hmm. won a couple national championships there. And then to come in with Rafael, once I put a guy down, now I need to finish him. Yeah. And... It surprised me, Lovato's uh, wrestling, because he's actually got some good stuff uh, that he does. But now I'm going to be able to show him that. He's showing me his world, and then we're growing together as like the boxing. That's so good, dude. That's so good. It's so interesting, too, because there's very few real submission artists today in the heavyweight division. You know, it used to be Fedor, when he was in his prime, was a submission artist. Of course, Noguera was the premier submission artist. Frank Mir, one of the all-time greats, for sure, in in terms of his accomplishments as a submission artist. But there's not a whole lot of that today. You know, you see knockouts and stuff, especially in the UFC. You don't see a whole lot of submissions. Right. Except Verdum. You know, Verdum can still submit people and win the title off of Kane that way. Yeah. So, yeah, so I, I'm, I'm excited because statistically, I think in my fights, if I've put it on the ground, I've already finished it. But now having that guy with me, coaching me mm. through... Um, I heard him in the fight. During the fight, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. And he's just telling me these little adjustments to was make. Was he right next to you while you were... He was across the cage. He's he's a good coach, and I had the whole camp to sit there and listen to him while he was off to the side. He's yelling at me, so, so I was just really trying to his tune voice in. in. Yeah, nice. Trying to do that, and we used to do that at Grudge uh, Training Center in Colorado. We would uh, turn up the music, we'd blast it uh, during sparring, and then we'd have our cornermen uh, off to the side, and they're hollering ah. and yelling. That way, we're able to start trying to pick their voices out with like a distraction with loud music going on, just like in the fight. So that way, if there's a huge crowd all yelling out different stuff, you're able to tune into the voices you need to hear. Uh, that's and Whose so, idea was that? Trevor's? Yeah, Trevor's. Powerful Trevor Whitman. Yeah, he's a smart that's very dude. smart. Very smart. Now, how are you balancing out your full-time training now that you're moving up in the rankings in Bellator and you know, you're, you're being more and more successful, but you're also doing this for a cause and for people who don't know – you are doing this for your pygmy family, these people that you've sort of uh, become a part of their world, and you've lived there for many, many months at a time, and you you go back and forth to help build water wells with uh, Water 4 and your organization, Fight for the Forgotten. And how are you balancing that out with being a professional fighter and trying to compete and perform at at your very best. Yeah, that, that's that been a learning process without a doubt, but now it's trying to find ways to set the right boundaries and in, in, in a way to protect my training schedule. At first, I was just saying yes to basically everything, um, and that made it really tough for my first two fights back uh, where I felt rushed. I didn't feel like the muscle memory was clicking. In between every training session or I'd be late to training sessions doing an interview or trying to talk to somebody or trying to tell people the story. Um, or I would have to leave early to go do it. Now it's like, it's been really great to move to Oklahoma City, have water for there to protect my training schedule. Um, and training comes first, because if I can keep going up in the ranks, if I can get a world championship under my belt or a few, you know, I'll have a bigger platform to stand on to tell, you know, I'll have a bigger microphone, bigger platform to be able to continue to tell this story. And so, yeah, we have a team of about 10, 12 people at Water 4 that have all rallied around it. They're trying to take stuff off my plate. Um, and be able to help fill in my schedule, but making sure I'm getting enough time to get in the training, get in the rest, and, man, just eight, nine weeks of that 
before this last fight, it, it truly paid off. It felt like there was a whole team around making sure that going into this fight, everything was exactly the way it should be. And that's how I felt too. I mean, uh, I have a little highlight clip of the fight, but I mean, the, the crowd was just, uh, it, it, it was overwhelming in an incredibly good way where it like felt, I could feel the energy. I could hear everybody there. I'd grown up in Dallas, Fort Worth, water four and fight for the forgotten is based in Lovato's is out of Oklahoma city. Um, and everyone met up in the middle on the border at this big casino called Windstar. And it was just awesome going in there and having everyone rally around. I don't feel like me. I mean, me too, but rally around fight for the forgotten what I'm fighting for. Let's see that video, Jamie. Yeah. And then the post fight interview. I mean, that's, that's what I'm living for now. That's what I'm fighting for. So I can talk. And how supportive has Bellator been about all this? Oh man. Incredibly supportive. It's blown me away. I mean, I get to, I get to talk about it and everything. So it's been, it's been awesome. There's Raphael up at the top left, big Josh Copeland to the right. Um, and yeah, I get to put fight for the forgotten all over my stuff. Is that a new uh, tattoo on your back? No, I've had that. I've had that, but, uh, yeah, it's been really great. You haven't added anything to it? Um, yeah, well, I had the cross and I did add the Vikings below it, but here uh, I had gotten a lateral drop before and then I was able to hit a belly to back. Beautiful suplex. suplex. Thanks. Ooh, I like how you call it suplex. Yeah. <laughs> and there's the there's arm tap. Nice. So now where do they have you in their rankings? And I mean, their, their heavyweight division isn't the deepest in the world, right? Who's their heavyweight champion? Uh, well, that, that was Vitaly Minikov, but he's been kind of, you know, in inactive. a struggle with, yeah, been inactive. Here's the part that I, I really like. I don't know if we can turn on the sure. volume, but you were kind of getting your feet underneath you, remembering how it went. It all seemed to come together tonight. Is that how it felt? Yeah. I mean, I definitely, I got, I got a lot of room to improve, a lot of work to do, but yes, it felt like the muscle memory was back. I'm in a camp. That is so great for my style with Rafael Lovato Jr. and the team. Big Josh Copeland, I'm just so blessed. Uh, encouraged, excited to be here. The little dance I was doing in here, hopefully it didn't look cocky or arrogant. That was my pygmy dance that we do out in the forest. And I just love them to be able to come in here and fight for them. Most people are lucky enough to have one tribe. You have two. Not only a family in the Congo, apparently here. They were very much behind you. How did it feel to win in front of them, man? <laughs> it's just so awesome. Thank you guys so much for coming out here. Everyone from Water 4, Oklahoma City, Dallas, Fort Worth, Eco Survivor. I'm just so lucky, so fortunate. People have jumped behind this because I love to fight. I love to be here and compete, but it's even better to fight for people. And so to know that fighting in here, getting a choke out, I'm gonna go over to Congo and knock out the world's water crisis for my bigger family. Moving forward, you said you have a lot of room to grow, but with performances like that, people are thinking about you in a wide open heavyweight division. What's next for you? Well, I'm coming for that belt. It's gonna come. It just might take a little bit of time to get there. I'm still getting my feet under me. I had five years, two months where I did zero training. And so I'm excited to get back in there, keep working my way up. I gotta earn it. Um, but I have, I think, more of a reason, a purpose, a passion to be in here. And so I'm just so thankful for everyone that's gotten behind us. Eco Survivor right here is donating 50% of their profits of their entire brand to come to the water wells in the Congo for Water 4, Fight for the Forgotten. 
Thank you guys for getting behind us. Before you go, you always talk to your Pygmy family. What do you have to say to them tonight? Man, I just, I love them so much. I was saying, I'm in here. I'm in here because I love you. That's what I'm in here. I'm a goo, I'm a goo. We are one. We are not different. And so, Siku uh, Mingi, it's been many, many days. I can't wait to come back and see you guys very, very soon and drill some more wells. So. The big pygmy, Justin Ray. That's a crazy platform, man, to be able to do that on TV like that in front of, I mean, who knows how many millions of people watch these I think I think that came to 1.1 or 1.2. Who was the headline? That. Uh, that was uh, Marlos Conan and Julia Budd for oh. that uh inaugural featherweight i believe or uh world title do you feel like bellator is getting more respect now like it's a it's becoming more of a like for a while it was looked at as sort of uh an also ran you know mm. but i think like now with the lineups getting stronger and stronger it seems like a the organization is growing in notoriety yeah i believe so and um i mean i think it's healthy uh it's very important i think it's good for everybody yeah exactly and 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 great for the fighters my Um, bosses might disagree right at the ufc but i really think i I, actually i don't think they would i think they'd probably agree i think it's important it's important to have competition it's good it's good Mm -hmm. for everybody yeah absolutely and so yeah i think bader just came over yep um phil Phil davis Davis is over phil davis is the the light heavyweight champion now yep absolutely so you don't really have a heavyweight champion is that what's going on yeah, they stripped vitaly minikov of it because he's fighting over uh, his contract allowed him to fight in fight nights or efn over in russia mm-hmm. um i went over there cornered josh against vitaly um and so he just hasn't come back and he just is i think he's making money in russia and fighting there and uh they're they're kind of been in a standoff and he can come back and fight but he's been stripped of his belt uh-huh. um and now i think they're you know scott's a smart guy so is rich um, they're putting something together for the heavyweights. And, uh, yeah, the Fedor-Matt Mitrione fight, that's going to be exciting to that's watch. That's not for and, a title, though, right? No, it's that's not for a title. A but Is that a three-rounder? Yes. Three, three fives. So when are they going to try to have a heavyweight title? I think it's coming up pretty soon. So I think probably in the next six months or, I mean, within that next three months. Now, looking at yourself and your own development and growth, how far away do you feel like you are from that, from um, fighting for that? Man, I... I <laughs> I want it now. I want to take that now, but uh, I think that realistically, being smart, strategic, getting another couple wins under my belt, some good wins, where I get to go in there and, and really show to myself, to Bellator, one, I need to earn it, and two, um, I need to get a couple more real impressive wins under my belt. Um, and yeah, I think, I think I know who I am as a fighter, and I can hang with those guys it's just I need to to build back because it's it was a long time off. And, yeah, uh, no, imagine. Yeah, it was a long time off, and then but train with great guys. I think in the next two or three fights, I'll really start taking uh, big steps up, and then um, after that, maybe in the next two three years, I'll, I'll have that belt. Yeah, they have uh, their their division is interesting now. Rampage is going to heavyweight too, right? Yeah, I think uh, I think it's a catchweight against King Mo. Um, I think that might be this next Friday or Saturday. So. Yeah. They're fighting in Chicago. Yeah, I've been reading shit talking online. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they keep going back and forth. <laughs> Which and is, King Mo keeps trying to fat shame uh, uh, Rampage. And, yeah. Uh, and 
he's coming back. So I yeah. love that expression. It's so silly. It wants yeah. fighters fat shaming when they're about to beat the fuck out of each other. Right. Call it fat shaming. So these uh, lanterns you brought me. First of all, thank you. Yeah. And uh, second of all, what is the deal with these bad boys? So uh, this is the first it. product that they had developed, um, and it's Eco Survivor. They're also out of Oklahoma City. So this it's is so the cool. company that's donating fifty percent of their money, their profits yeah. to Water Four. Absolutely. And so all the packaging. This is old packaging. And let everybody but, um, know that Water Four is the company that's building these wells in the Congo for the pygmies, and this is the organization that you work closely with. Right. And so they started Eco Survivor so that it could be basically an empowerment mechanism on all the all the packaging. It's going to have um, a picture of me, a picture of the wells, a picture of the pygmies. Um, and we're going to tell the story. And when they go to ecosurvivor.com, uh, which I think just launched, looks great. Um, you would almost think it's a nonprofit website because they're highlighting the cause so much. Right. But they, uh, we're talking about how we make it sustainable there, empower them with sustainable business. And they're like, hey, we want to we want to do that here. They were already a very successful company. The, the parent company's Jasco Products Company. And they make... Uh, they do licensing things, lights and all sorts of things for General Electric and uh, Energizer and Philips. I mean, they have 3,000 products on the market, so they're incredible. Um, yeah, so oh, there's there a we website. go. Would you drink dir- dirty water? Nearly a billion people have no choice. This is uh, this is great, man. Yeah. So these things. Oops, I just turned it on accidentally. And so they're they're rugged. They, they are. Like I mean, I, I've I've done impact testing where I'm jumping up and down on top of these. What? And, they're that uh, that strong? Yeah, they're that strong. I can How's stand on it right now. Um, yeah, there you go. Put it down. Stand on it. <laughs> You'll be fine. I mean, my my heavyweight butt gets on top of it and uh, jumps around and. Dude, this is incredible. Right. So I mean, our team is using this um, in the Congo. There you go. Look at that balance. Take yoga on this. You are. What's that, a scorpion? I don't know what it is. I don't pay attention. (laughs) I just do what they tell me to do. That's amazing, man. That's crazy. You can stand on this thing. Yeah. I've done that with, uh, I won't name any names of the competitors, but whenever I start to stand on the other ones, the bulbs crush and the things break. And uh, yeah, so this right here, though, uh, it's got carabiners. Our guys were using this till 1.30 in the morning, maybe a week ago. They put it up on the tripods, um, and then they're able to just go to work. Uh, So it's really great. Um, what is the glass made out of? How's the, gra- the glass supporting me? That part actually. So a dome. I do know this that a dome structure uh, is the strongest thing out there. Right, but um, it's plastic. Yeah, it is. It is a plastic. So it's just a, a super strong plastic. Super strong plastic. It's LED uh, light, and it's got uh, 360 degree omnidirectional lighting, which basically just means it goes all around, and uh, there's no blind spots with the light for the most part. And then um, that's killer, man. Yeah, and then so from there we're gonna do flashlights, headlamps, uh, Bluetooth speakers. Bluetooth speakers that have battery packs in them, then just battery packs. Then we're doing walkie-talkies, walkie-talkies that have battery packs in them. No um, shit. Yeah, and so we're doing it to where I, the everyday adventurer can be part of it, um, but but we're doing it so that way this stuff's going to last for our team in the Congo. And then when people are buying it here, they know that 50% of their purchase or the profits from the purchase are going straight to the cause. That's awesome, man. Yeah. That's I, awesome. I, man, I've heard of companies doing... You know, I, I love it when a company gives one percent, two percent, five percent, ten percent. But right. I've never heard of a company. I mean, they're 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 running this better than 
a lot of nonprofits are. Oh, with way, giving 50% way better. of the profits away. No, that's insane. That's, so, a, a, that's incredibly generous of them. Yeah. That's awesome, man. Thanks. And so, one more time, the company's called Eco, Eco Survivor. Survi- and what is their website? Ecosurvivor.com. And it's kind of cool. Jamie, if, uh, if you can pull that up, uh, even if you scroll down, so two days ago was World uh, Water Day. Oh, yeah. And right on there, make a, make a donation goes right to our page. Make a purchase. You can buy the lanterns right now. We have mm. a lot more coming out soon. So, right now, it's just the lanterns. And then the, head, just the, when the, the headlamps coming out. Hope, I, I use those. Yeah, hopefully I'll, I'll get you some. Hopefully I'll the buy next. them. I want to okay. contribute. Thank you so much. So, um, um, and then it shows where the, next the three, wells are being built. Yeah, oh, wow, that's so cool. And then down a little bit shows the statistics, um, and it just shows. I mean, the average water walk, for instance, is three point seven five miles round trip for a woman oh. to just go collect. Oftentimes dirty, most of the times dirty water. And heavy. Heavy, 44 pounds. It's uh, 20 liters, five gallons. Most people um, have no idea how hard it is to carry 40 pounds. Yeah. Oh, think about one of those kettlebells, right? Yeah. And then, uh, and then a lot of times the women, the women do two at a time and the children do one. God and so damn. these little girls can't go to school cause they, in that water walk, they're not doing that one time a day. They're doing it two and three times a day cause their, their household needs more than just five gallons of water. Yeah. And so a lot of times the girls can't be sent to school or the kids can't, or they have to pick one of the kids that can go to school. So the other ones can go collect water all day. Fuck. I think it's over a billion days each year. Um, work days that are lost just because of the women that have to go do the water walks over a billion work days and there you you and if people have never seen any of the episodes that justin was on before please watch the last ones uh if you get a chance it'll you'll catch up more to what you've gone through what some of these people have gone through the right. kind of parasites these people get mm-hmm. from this water and how important this is for you and how much growth and progress has been over the past few years of your efforts down there yeah well, th- thank you so much. It's it's been incredible. I, Emily was telling me, uh, my wife, uh, coming here that wow, this was over four years ago when you were on Joe's show the first time, and we hadn't drilled one single well. That's crazy. I, I had just been there. Um, Andy Bow had happened. The one and a half year old boy that had passed away. I held his lifeless body and buried him, and just did. Uh, it ripped me open. You know, it tore my heart apart, like it would anyone. Um, like it would anyone. But it was just a rude awakening to the water crisis that that there's 800 kids every day die just because of diarrhea, just be, like literally die from diarrhea. And then 2,350, 2,350 die of the malnutrition that diarrhea causes. So if you're in an area that doesn't have access to clean water, there's probably not an abundance of food around you. But even the food that you do get... You're eating it and it goes right through you because you have diarrhea. You don't absorb any of the nutrients. And so that's over 3,000 just because of that. And then that's not counting a lot of the sicknesses and everything else, typhoid, E. coli. And so that's 1.5 million deaths a year of children under the age of five. 1.5 million, all of them are preventable. And so, like, I truly believe, man, like, we have, we've found something really special at Water 4 and there's other organizations that I'm sure are doing it in different spaces, but I feel like us, we are doing it in a way that we put the tools in the hands of the people that need it the most, the, the people in the community. I mean, our team's 18 people and we've first year that I was there. So in the last five years, I've lived there for about two years back and forth one, t- one year at one time. But then I was able to help drill and train them for the first 13 wells. The year I was stepping back, I was nervous. You know, I'm not going to be there. I can't micromanage these guys or I can't watch them. I can't encourage them. 
you know, uh, I don't want to micromanage anyone, but I, I can't be there to do the work. But then they were able to do 20 wells the year without me the next year. Last year they did 29. So we're up to, I think, 62 wells um, that they've drilled for themselves in their own community. And that's our guys of 18, but Water 4 has 375, and they drilled 690 water wells last year alone. Wow. And that served, so those are 375 people in the continent of Africa that live in 16 African nations, and they were able to give 172,000 people clean water for the first time in their lives. And so, um, man, we can, we can knock this water crisis out in our lifetime if that's what we do, if we give them the solution. That's incredible. That's, that's amazing progress in just a few years. Yeah, it's been, uh, it's blown me away. Bro. So talk to me about how Bellator is helping, how they're getting behind this. Well, that's what really sold me with, I mean, I had offers from most places when I, was, when I came back. And, uh, but, but when I sat down with Scott um, and I was writing the book uh, with Loretta and went out to eat with him in Santa Monica. And he was just like, hey. Like, we want to give you a chance to really tell your story. Like, you need to fight. You got to prove it. Like, you have to have that, that hard work and skill and talent behind you. You have to be able to perform. But if you can do that, we're going to rally around you. Um, they want to rally around their fighters that, that, that put in the time, the effort that they can produce results. But um, it was really encouraging to hear that. And then I, I was bummed out the first two fights. I mean, I won, but I didn't win decisively like I wanted to. So to get this last fight underneath me where I really performed well um, and and was pretty dominant like uh, I think they know that I can fight and uh, and I know I can fight and so now we can do this in a way that man when I win literally wells are being drilled every single time wow. and so eco survivor is helping me drill several wells after this last one that's incredible um, yeah now how do you balance out your training when you're when you're visiting the Congo and staying there? Yeah. So a tough thing is so I kind of shared a little bit of our model and how we give the tools to the people um in the community. So my travel schedule it's uh, it's been a hard pill to swallow but I think it's the most strategic thing where I'm only going to go once a year now. Um I'm going to go once a year because I need to be here training. Um that's my uh, at first, I thought I was the one that that made this thing go, but really, it's 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 our guys in the field. They're the engine, and I was maybe the spark plug that that, that kind of started up something. And now I get to go back and be the encourager or to fuel them back up. Um, but they're the ones doing the work, and so I'm only going to go once a year. I'll probably fight in June or July. I was talking with Bellator, and then right after that, we're starting up a soap production facility in Congo with our guys is going to start another eight to 10 jobs because we go in and we, we teach the wash program. Mm. So we need, uh, we need them to start making soap for themselves because right now the only thing I've ever seen available is car washing soap. That's packed full of chemicals from China or India. And they have they all the raw themselves with car washing. Soap? I, I did while I was there for the year Jesus and my skin would Christ. be raw afterwards cause there's nothing else available. I mean, I took soap with me, but when I was there for a full year, I mean, it only lasted for the first month, maybe. Right. And so the rest of the time I was using this car washing soap that, man, it, it, it's rough on your body. And so we are partnering with a company called Pacha Soap. They're at all the Whole Foods. Um, they have a sister company, uh, Amazi, they're at Target. And th those guys go around and they start up soap production facilities in the developing nation to give jobs. So is it possible that that could become an industry for the people in the Congo where yeah. they can start selling their absolutely. soap and, and then, you know, maybe Eco Survivor could sell it on their website as well? Yeah, absolutely. Or, or, or they start up a new, yeah, or that other company. Yeah, yeah. 
Pacha, which has been great to us. They actually, uh, a kind of cool story, the, the founder of Pacha was listening to this podcast whenever he had the dreams to start it up. Whoa. And he was uh, actually being like kind of a, I think it was a janitor at night through the night shift. And he was listening to this and he had all the dreams to start up Pacha. He helped us get our 501c3 with uh, Fight for the Forgotten. Holy shit. So after my first time being on the show, he reached out to me and he had just started up Pacha. And so he helped me get Fight for the Forgotten started up. His name's Andrew Verbus. Great, incredible guy. But the inspiration he got from here to do something, make a difference. Now he's in all the Whole Foods. He's about to be in Target. Um, And he's coming with me this next trip. Or actually, he might not come because we don't really take volunteers now. We just empower the locals. But we're going to start up that soap production facility that's going to start eight to ten new jobs. We'll go in the schools. Because last year, our team spent 301 days teaching the WASH program. So teaching... Water and sanitation and hygiene, helping them dig latrines, helping them know the importance of clean hands. So we set up, set up outside the latrines a hand-washing station, which is called a tippy-tap. So they have a clean jug of water. They have a bar of soap. They step on a stick and a rope, and it tilts this jug over, and they're able to wash their hands right there. But then they only had that car-washing soap, so now we're going to meet another need, start up the soap production. They have the eucalyptus trees there, the palm oil, the avocados. I mean, just whatever we need with lemongrass, um, whatever we need to make the soap with, which that's not my specialty, but I know all the raw materials are there. What is this company again, and how do people find out about this company? Pacha? Spell that? P-A-C-H-A. Pacha Soap. And you can go, I think, into any Pacha Whole Foods. Pacha.com? Is it I think Pacha it's PachaSoap.com. So. PachaSoap.com. But they're, they're incredible, in man. They're in Whole Foods. They're already in Whole Foods? They just started? No, no. That's they've been baller. in there a few years ago, a few years now. Fill your Easter um, basket. But yeah, but you're saying this is all within the last few years, right? Oh, yeah. The, within the last few years, last four or five years. It's and, amazing. Uh, so it's PachaSoap.com? Yeah. PachaSoap.com. Wow. And they're hiring. Look at that. There you go. Your purchase spread goodness. Yeah. Wow. And so they do a buy one, give one, but they do it in the right way because they're the social entrepreneurship of like you buy one and then here and we give one in a developing nation. Right. Sounds really good. It's got the right heart, good intentions, but it can be very dangerous if it's distributed in the wrong way. So their buy one, give one actually creates jobs in the developing nation. Then they make it and then they sell it and they're able to give it that way to their community instead of some of the charities, um, you buy something here and you go give it over there. And then when they go, they go with huge amounts and they say, if they're dropping off shoes or clothes or whatever, the local people that have a shoe store go out of business. Whenever you bring in containers and containers of, of shoes or the guy that's repairing the shoes, the, the cobbler, you know, the one that's making shoes there. So you can't just go into a community and give it out. I actually watched a documentary recently called poverty Inc. Man, it was powerful showing how, how charity hurts or how there's also a great book out called when helping hurts. And it talks about, Hey, charity's awesome. And, and when it's absolutely needed, but it's very dangerous if you use it in the wrong way, you can cripple a community. And so how do we empower the local communities with a hand? How does it cripple the community by, by by giving them something for nothing and then they get giving them something for nothing either, either. Yeah. That's first on the surface. Um, they can develop a dependence mentality of just putting a hand out mm-hmm. um, because they got to get what they can get 
whenever people just show up, blow up and blow out of there. But the documentary Poverty Inc. goes in there and shows how in Haiti, their local farmers have been put out of business by government subsidies um, from I, I've been to Haiti and I've seen the American grown rice. That's all just given out for free or at the markets. The people that get it for free then go to the market and they beat all the local farmers because they got it for free or they paid, a, paid such a small price. They didn't really do all the work. So they're able to beat all their competitors, the local market. So they get it for free and then they sell it? Is that what you're saying? They can at little shops. They can yeah. do that or they just get it and they don't need it. And I think, so it cuts off the local farmers who are trying to sell their own stuff. And they can, since they're getting it for free, they could sell it at a much lower price. Right. Absolutely. And it, and it shows, it, it, go, it dives deep into how, how it how it hurts so much in a way that like, um, man, I think Hades used there. They used to eat rice two to three times a week. Now they're eating it three times a day with breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Hmm. And they're doing it. And it's all the rice that they have available to them are from the U S or from China or from India. And it's because these big farmers with a lot of power in the government, they're able to make deals with the United Nations and other places to be able to go in and give out their rice there. And they get paid for it from the government here, right? U.S. government pays these farmers these these prices, and then they go into a community and just give it out. And now, how do I say this in a way that it's not bad uh, intentions? No one's trying to, I don't think there's these evil people trying course, to yeah. to destroy developing nations. I don't think that's the case. But there's a, a model out there that's been the traditional model of let's announce our arrival by throw, throwing a parade. Let's throw a big party. Let's get a bunch of pictures. Um, and let's, let's leave to the next one because we have such a big organization or so many funds or, or a big quota to hit. We have, this is our goal this year. We have this many tally marks to get. So we blast into one community and then we blow out of there into a new one. We don't develop relationships with them to be able to empower them, teach them skills. That, that part, how do I say it? Like the, the answer to poverty isn't charity. It's opportunity. Opportunity is always better than charity. If that, if that makes sense, a handout or a hand up, like the give a man a fish, right. feed him for a day or teach him how to fish, feed him for a lifetime. And so if there's a disaster, if there's uh, a person with a disability, if there's a war or a famine, then charity is the solution, but there's got to be an escape plan. There's got to be a route out. Mm. Otherwise, whenever I went to Haiti, it was a year and a half, two years after the earthquake and the tent city they had had doubled or tripled in size. Because I met a guy there that was saying I could, I moved out of my apartment, which wasn't damaged by the earthquake. And I get to go live at tent city rent free. I still have my job and I get three meals a day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I don't have to prepare them. I don't have to pay for them. Mm. And so, and these places are always going to be giving to that tent city. And it's actually grown in size. He was like, I'm saving up to buy a house. <laughs> and so it's like, if people think, oh, there's just this disaster, it's like, man, if someone brought in like some vocational training, you know, let's teach these people how to do this kind of work. Like, I don't think honestly, most sane people, um, out there that are living in poverty want to be poor for the rest of their life. They're sitting there waiting for an opportunity. The dad wants to put food on the table for the family. So does the mom. She wants to take care of her kids. And so whenever we can come into a community, and spend time with them, if that makes sense. Like, sit down, listen to them, learn from them. And then we can say, how can we work together? How can we brainstorm? What does your community really need? Instead of treating it like there's a cookie-cutter solution or blueprint, 
that it, since it worked in this community, it's going to work in that community. Or since it worked in this country, it's going to work in that country. Like every country has its own culture. Mm-hmm. And like Congo has over 200 tribes. That's over 200 different cultures. And so some are going to receive it well, some aren't. Some, how do you, how do you work with them in a way that isn't just coming in and just giving them stuff that I, I've seen it. I've seen a riot happen uh, in Uganda. It was in Jinja, uh, Jinja, Uganda, where an organization came in with a bunch of canned foods. And they did it in a very poor fashion where um, they just cracked open this container in a slum. And it's one of the roughest slums in Uganda. Um, and people just raided it. And it, it didn't even give probably a quarter of the people in the slums uh, a canned item from the U.S. And so people started fighting over it. And they're fighting over it, and it's uh, and someone got really hurt. I don't know if they died, but someone got really hurt there. We had to get out of there. And so, what I know from that organization is, and I'm not going to say the organization, but I heard from the other organizations there that they they had been warned, like you're new at this, don't go in there and do this, don't right. crack open this container, and do it that way. But they had spent like twenty thousand dollars getting the canned goods there, shipping, buying a container, shipping it over there, going through. Kenya, then, uh, then probably Tanzania or Tanzania, then Kenya, then Uganda. They're having to pay all the fees everywhere they go to just go give it away. That $20,000 could have empowered so many farmers locally or people that don't know how to farm to be able to start farming for themselves. That then is going to have such a better return on investment because you're investing into the people, into a trade, into a skill, into something that they need. And it's going to last. It's going to continue to produce results. It totally makes sense. And I think what you're saying is so important that these people have great intentions, but yeah. that just human nature and the, giving the, the circumstances in which these people live in where they had no hope and then all of a sudden they have this one thing and this one thing is gifts. Right. Far better to do what you're doing, to provide them with opportunity. You know, And I think that's – I mean the, 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 the issue that I think a lot of people are going to have with even discussing that is the callous – discussions of the welfare mentality you know the, the way mm. people look at some communities and people who you know the, the term welfare brats or welfare you know welfare people that are just kind of like connected to that the the need for charity yeah. and i think that mirrors um the the idea of welfare and you know where people don't have jobs and don't have opportunities and just getting money and getting addicted to that money that problem is, exists in america as well obviously it's a much bigger deal in the congo because you're talking about like basic life necessities like f- right. fresh water but i think that's important man it's important to understand what human nature um like the, the mechanisms of human nature and like what you're talking about here is really powerful to, to have thought it out so well and to give these people this opportunity, and now to give these people this opportunity with the soap, I mean, Pacha is doing an awesome job. I mean, that's, yeah. an, that's an amazing thing. I yeah. think that's so I important. Him, and I, I really hope that more people listen and more people hear you and more people say, hey, you know, I want to get involved. Let's, let's do something else in the Congo. Let's, let's give these people another opportunity. Yeah. If they can start businesses down there, man, yeah. and like really empower themselves and be able to build homes and just – because like in your lifetime, you could see some crazy change. Yeah. Yeah. I, kn- I know that's coming in Congo, but I think like, let's not, let's not set a ceiling or roof on it. And I'm not, that's what I'm not saying. That's what you're saying. But I'm just saying that I truly believe that the water crisis, 1 billion people not having clean water in our lifetime, we have the tools, the technology, and people are learning. I mean, from podcasting, like people are getting 
better than doctorate's degrees, you know, like in information and, and, and life experience and learning and learning to do things the right way and truly have people's best interests at heart. Um, I think there's going to be a real shift to where, I mean, if I have, if I have the water to, to take a piss in, um, or to water my lawn with, or to give my dog clean water, uh, we're going to be able to give every person in the world clean water. Um, but it's through empowerment and it's through opportunity. And, uh, and that's what I love. I even have a, since it was world water day two days ago, I have a video that kind of explains the problem. And, uh, it's from a village that, um, I'm really close with named Ataluhulu. And there's this little girl named Siku that was just, uh, a beautiful little girl and um and if it's okay but it shows what they're facing what they're drinking yeah for sure um and man it's 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 powerful you got that jamie hashtag powerful yeah my hope for my children is for them to go to school to grow in peace and to be good and take care of me when I'm old. That's the water they were drinking. Jesus. For folks just listening, it's green algae all over the surface of it. It looks disgusting. Yeah. Everyone is suffering here, but in most cases, it's our children. I know the water we drink gives us all these sicknesses. My daughter's name was Siku. She couldn't speak yet, but she was able to crawl. She was a baby. I suffered so much when she was suffering. I brought her to the hospital. She passed away there. I said to myself, I was just carrying my baby. And then to see people burying her? I said, how did she disappear? Where did she go? She's carrying this water on her head, folks. This giant jug. When I lost my child, I lost all hope for the future. We're watching a video of her walking through the Congo, carrying this water jug on top of her head. This 45-pound jug. Fuck, man. That's hard to deal with. If someone like you wasn't bringing attention to this, I mean, do you understand, like, what a huge role you're playing here? Is that... Um, I mean, it's, it's surreal. And, uh, but at the same time, like I, I think that's why I've completely wholeheartedly dedicated my, my life to this because that was the, that was the first promise. I didn't know that we could do anything with land or water or food at first. Um, now we have 3000 acres of land drilled the 62 wells. We have three farms up and running. Um, about to start the soap, but man, like I didn't want to make any promises that I couldn't keep. And for the chief to come to us and say, Hey, 
Everyone else calls us the forest people, but we call ourselves the forgotten. It wrecked me. And then he said, can you help us have a voice? Because we don't have one. I said, yes. I knew that from fighting, from being on the ultimate fighter, um, whether that ever grew or didn't grow, um, I had some people and just having the platform of being here, being from the West, being from somewhere where people can, uh, have an abundance of resources to make a difference. Um, and even if it's small, like our small here is so big there. And so, uh, I said yes, uh, to that. And little Siku was the third, uh, little one that I knew, uh, that had passed, um, and Atalahulu. And before that was Andy Bo. After that was little Babo. Um, a little girl named Mo also, uh, and Sangule and Captula, um, and Siku. And, uh, these are all kids I knew that I was, uh, uh, I'd become friends with over two years living there. And, um, and so ha- having either held them or buried them or uh, having played growing up, knowing their families or seeing some of those kids grow up and then their lives get cut short. Um, it's been like, man, like when I fight, it's in honor of them. When I talk about this problem, like I know the, it's not just, I read about it or I just maybe saw it and it hurt for a little while. Like I knew them like those, those kids, 800 kids a day from diarrhea and 2,350 from another 1.5 billion a year. Like I know the names of some of those kids and had relationships with them and their families. And so, um, like I never would have thought <laughs> that this, that I would be in a position to try to, to help or that I even knew about the problem. I, I didn't, um, until it hit me upside the head. But, uh, but now that that's where my life has gone, that's what I'm going to dedicate it to. Wow. That's powerful shit, dude. You're living a fucking crazy life. Yeah. You, yeah, really, you really are. I mean, you, you're really living a life of purpose. It's so rare that someone does it at, at such a high level. You know? I mean, you're, you're in a, a very strange situation, a very strange driver's seat in life. Well, thank, I mean, yeah, it is definitely strange, but thank you to you, man, for, uh, for ha- even allowing me to have this platform before we drilled. I mean, like, we were, we were getting to it, um, but but we hadn't actually completed it yet. It's kind of how Andrew was listening to JRE while he was being a janitor, had this dream. I had this dream and you allowed me to come on and share about it. And so many like stars have aligned because of that. Um, and, and there's just been a lot of really great stuff that, that knife, actually, I have a picture for you. If I'm holding I, up a, a knife that's uh, made out of a nail. It's actually... Chicago. I use this to open up all my letters and you? packages and stuff. Yeah. That's so awesome. Yeah, it's cool. Chief Leo may, made wow. both of those for you. And uh, uh, I think on that little file it says knife. Um, and I actually had a picture. I didn't get to show you yet, but this is how he makes the knives. Um, but he just finds the nails out in the forest and... Uh, some ladders or different things and he pulls them out uh, the people deforesting the rainforest he gets their nails and makes them something uh something useful um and so that's that's a picture of the knife i think there might be one more picture of him making the knives so what he's doing is he's his, taking uh, a nail and he's hammering it flat mm-hmm. he's taking this big spike nail like a construction nail mm-hmm. like a railroad kind of yeah thing. and not quite a railroad or uh, the, like actually a, the one in his it's right like hand. It's like a framing nail, right? That makes sense. Oh, the, the one in his right hand that he hammers it down with. He yep. uses it as a hammer. It's a railroad spike. Yeah. 
Man. So uh, just really creative. And uh, this is actually, if you pull up the other one that says, uh, oh, yeah, there he is with some of the kiddos, this little Swazi on the right. Um, and there's the huts behind them and the twig and leaves. They make those kind of doorways wow. uh, in there. And um, it's just been really cool. They, they live on 247 acres. It's land that they have um, for the first time. And, oh, man, so I, that, that video was powerful because it showed the problem, but there's actually one that's with Chief Leo May. That's uh, the second video on, on that list. And if I can show that to you, I got something for you. From there, from Leo May's village, it's called Bobofi, um, and there's a video uh, that's going to show like kind of the transformation or the solution kind of to the problem, because okay. uh, that first video just showed the problem is hard, right. but then there's hope, too, that uh, we can out. do something about it. Real transformation changes the present and the future. So he's walking with a giant. My name is Leome. I'm from Bobofi village. I want to teach my grandson how to hunt. We are teaching these young boys this because this is our original way of life. One day we'll die, but these young people will live on. I love that forest. I love it. It's gorgeous. People treat pygmies like we aren't important. They think we're stupid. When we worked on farms, we would get 10 or 15 bananas to split among seven people. If I tried to start a small farm, someone would take it from me and say, your father did not own any land. In 2013, Leomay's village received land of their own. It was about 247 acres. I was happy to have my own land, but we were getting water from the river. It was bad water. Our people were sick. Sometimes they would get sick and die without treatment. Anybody getting sick from the water since we've had the well here. It's so good. It's so sweet. I love it. But the big change is that we can farm. This is a before and after of the same place. All those banana trees. We started with potatoes, then cassava, then we planted some banana trees. How many banana trees have you planted? I cannot count. It's a lot. I can't finish counting. 
Bananas. The first time we took bananas to the market, we bought clothes for the children. When we saw them wearing clothes and shoes, we were so happy. Today, we have a toilet. We have a place to wash our hands. We have a place to shower. So to me, that's progress. I'm so full of joy joy. because he made he did a great thing for us because they did a great thing for us here so this generation and generation children will be here on this land wow that's intense whew Imagine living your whole life in despair, and then all of a sudden, over the last few years, things radically change for the better. That's powerful, man. Wow. Whew. Man. What a crazy thing you're doing, Justin Wren. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, to be completely honest, man, like I got to be the spark plug, but man, there's a big engine around this. Oh, State, I understand. Stateside Water 4, without a doubt, all of our supporters, we couldn't do it without them. But mostly, we couldn't do it without the people on the ground there in the Congo, 18 Congolese people with a heart to change, be the change in their own country, to change the country from the inside out, countrymen to countrymen, uh, not being dependent on others. I mean, they're, they're starting to secure water contracts uh, to drill wells and do water projects in their own country. So that way they don't have to be dependent on us. I mean, uh, our team in Uganda is over 70% uh, self-sufficient, self-funded inside the country. Our guys in Congo are close to 50%. um, And we're on track to get these teams to where they're 100% self-sufficient to where we just come in with the training and the techniques and the tools. But, like, they don't need us to fund it anymore. So that way we can go off to other places and do it again, replicate it. Wow. So what is the, is there a long-term strategy in terms of? Yeah. So basically things that work, um, in their context. So that way we give them like the manual drilling. Um, one instance, I don't know why this Swahili proverb just popped in my mind, but they say you, you Americans or you Westerners, you guys all have watches, but we're the ones that who, who have time. (laughs) And so, uh. Does that make sense? Like you guys all have watches, but we have time. Right. And they see us as always rushing, rushing, rushing Mm. and trying to get this done and that done and this done. And they're like, Hey, it's good to go out and crush things and get so many goals and so many accomplishments under your belt, but let's make sure we're doing it all the right way. So that's what I I mean. Honestly, I've learned from them, slow it down so you can do it right. Do it correctly. Um, I've even started to implement that into my lifting and in training, right? Like slow things down, do it slow, controlled and do it correctly instead of just trying to put up a bunch of weight. Um, and so there they, they slow things down. Um, and, and, and honestly, the long-term solution is reason why we don't take volunteers anymore. Um, and I've only taken two people with me to the Congo, uh, but they were geohydrologists or engineers that needed to come, uh, but the reason is, is because when you take volunteers over, most of them are going to be amateurs or they're going to be white belts. If I to put it to a MMA or BJJ analogy, um, and our guys in the field there, 
they're becoming black belts, or they are now, after years of training, years of development on this uh, since 2011. Um, I mean, our guys in Congo have drilled those 62 wells, but they went to Sierra Leone. They taught a team in Cameroon from the ground up. They went to Uganda, Kenya, and Rwanda. And these teams are all working together, and they're going off after they learn how to do it. They're going to other communities in their own country, or they're going to another country. It's so cool. We have this dynamic going on between, we call it the Virunga Initiative. There's the Virunga Mountains that are on the border of Uganda, Rwanda, and Congo. Now, there's so many uh, rebel groups uh, that are there, um, and and the those countries have been at war against each other. Like, the people from those nations pretty much hate each other. Like, they, they all blame the one another for, you guys are doing this in our country, and you're, rebel, you're sending rebels into our country, and or your government soldiers are actually pretending to be rebels, but they're working for the government, and they're stealing our gold and our diamonds. And anyway, so they, they don't work together, but now our well drillers that are from Rwanda and Uganda and Congo, they're all working so much together. We get everything in from Uganda. Um, our team goes to uh, Rwanda from Congo to teach them how to train. But that Rwandan team comes over to us and teaches us business principles. Um, and so it's just been so cool to see how they're working together and how uh, the, our guys in Congo are holding Ugandan and Rwandan flags over their back, taking pictures. And the other guys are wearing Congo flags over their back. And our team that came from Uganda to live with me for three months and our team to help us really get off the ground and start learning, they had drilled over 100 wells for their fellow Ugandans. They left for three months to come live with us in Congo. Their first day there, they, they, the car flipped, their taxi driver flipped. Uh, the car ran over a woman, killed her. They don't speak the Congolese Swahili or French. They're from an English-speaking nation in Uganda. And all of a sudden, they had the car was looted. It was torched. Um, and people were chasing them down, wanting to put tires around them and set them on fire and burn them and kill them because they were Ugandan. They got in an accident. It's the whole mob justice kind of mentality that happens. Like if if they send them to the jail or court, they know that, you know, justice probably won't be had if they have money on them. And so uh, people just want justice then. It's kind of wild over there in, uh, in that area of the world. So these Ugandan guys literally knew they were risking their lives to come live with us in Congo just because they're hated by Congolese. But then whenever they flip their vehicle, first day there, they're on the border basically still of Uganda. They're in a town called Nyoka, which means snake. And they hit a lady. It killed her. And now it was the taxi driver driving, it, and he's not part of our team. But then they all wanted to kill the Ugandan guys instead of the Congolese guy. Um, and then they still stuck it out. We're able to regain our $15,000 of well drilling equipment that was there. Luckily, we had a uh, – this is a side topic, but we had this um, – this water filtration system that was from solar panels and they had these two big chambers on it. And in the middle is this timer that you literally twist and it goes for an hour and has a green and red light on it. And it ticks, tick, 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 tick. Well, we had it locked up whenever it came from the States and our Ugandan team picked it up and they go, Hey, the, the something called TSA broke off the lock and left you a note. And so they were checking it because it looked like these two chambers and a timer and it looked like it could have been a bomb in this big Pelican case. So whenever the Congolese guys looted the car, set it on fire, they ran away with it and hid behind a hut. Um, well, whenever they opened that Pelican case, all of a sudden they thought it was a bomb and they ran away and left all of our stuff there. 
So whenever they found out that these guys from Uganda already risked their lives to come here and teach Congolese how to drill wells for themselves, they were truly good guys. It was just an accident. They got behind us and led us back to our equipment and said, uh, be careful, though, like that bomb. That's why we left it out there. So they understood um, that it was a, a big misunderstanding. Yeah, it was a big misunderstanding. And so they forgave those people? Forgave and, them. Forgave our Ugandan well drillers who weren't even really a part of it. It was the taxi driver they, that accidentally hit. Did they apologize for wanting to stick tires around them and light them yeah, on fire? Yeah, absolutely. Fuck. And so, uh, so anyway, that's a long story. It was crazy wild, and we thought our guys were going to die because we were like six hours away from them, and we were hearing like a riot oh, basically Jesus. happening. Um, but it was so cool, man, that, uh, that we got all our supplies back. And then afterwards, um, I mean, we, we, we gave, we helped with the burial process and the funeral and everything else, even though it was the taxi driver, not us. We, we felt so bad that that had happened, but then to know like, Hey, now it was just a story that we were able to, I mean, not, not the loss of life, but, but those people now know that we're here to help them. Right. Right. Uh, and we were able to go back in there and do that for them afterwards. That's- so, uh, it's amazing, man. I mean, you, I know you, there's a book that uh, Loretta Hunt wrote with you, right? Mm-hmm. But you've lived another life since the book. Yeah. You know? I mean, you have another book's life, a book's, well, a life's worth of, what's the word, the way to describe it? Another, easily another book. Right. Well, thanks. Um, well, that's what I love about, man, these short films, that's all part of the documentary. Um, in fact, maybe, I mean... I should probably say that, like, after I was on the second or third time here, we did a Kickstarter for the documentary, and we got it fully funded. Yet, the documentary is not out yet, because we're going back one more time uh, to film. Uh, that will probably be July or August, right after my fight. We'll bust over there, and we're trying to submit it to Sundance Film Festival this year. We submit it in September. Hopefully, we, we get in the, uh, the festival, um, and we'll be there in January. Um, and then it will be out, and a lot of the JRE supporters that gave to the Kickstarter will be able to do it. But we really wanted to do the story, not the story, when do the pygmies um, and their family and, and everyone suffering for the world, from the world's water crisis. We wanted to do them justice, to give them a voice. The book was me giving them a voice, but the documentary, they're going to have their own voice. And so it's been so cool. It's been filmed over three and a half years now. I think when it comes out, it'll, it'll be a four full years that Derek's been able to go back and forth and go get more of the story and show not just like them getting water for the first time, but then also how we're giving jobs, how they're getting trained, how they're starting up workshops, how we're breaking ground on the soap production facility. We already have the land. We started the foundation of the place. And, um, and so how it's the full spectrum of it to, to hopefully show how empowerment, uh, how much farther that goes. Now it's a lot tougher. It takes a lot more time really have to be strategic you have to sit and listen and learn um and be humble enough to say like it's a learning process like when you do something whenever you get out of that lane of truly listening and saying i think that's that's the quote that our team tries to live by it's a swahili proverb that says if you want to go fast go alone but if you want to go far go together Mm. And so it's like, how, how can every community we go in, how can we take this as far as we can? Not go as fast as we can, because if we want to go fast, we just leave them out of it. But if we want to go far, we'll go together. And so we do that with our well drilling team, but we do that with the communities too, because they all live by that. They all know that. Like, that's like a saying that, that's just ingrained in them. Wow. Do you have a long-term strategy with this? Like, do you, 
do you see yourself like how long do you see yourself fighting and what do you see yourself doing after you're done with that um i think i'm going to fight for the next uh five to seven years uh, well i mean if i can go out on top i'd love to do that um i don't think i need to carry it too long too far and go out on a bad note of a string of brutal losses um mm. i i think uh i want to get that platform i want to get to the top um and then i want to to leave and and go do something else and uh which is this but man it's been so cool our team in sierra leone and our team in uh, uh kenya and now we're about to do it in rwanda we did this like crowdfunding campaign that we threw up on world water day we're doing it through the rest of the month um but we st- have started water towers so basically we drill a well and then we have a water tower which turns into a water kiosk where people from the community come up to it they might pay pay five shillings for a jerry can so a jerry can's five gallons they pay five cents but eventually all the people in the community the one in rwanda we're doing is going to serve four thousand people it's at a school so the kids will have clean water all throughout the day but then people come there and the one in kenya is funding a school but the one in rwanda is going to fund more water wells so as these people buy clean water the only clean water around there that community the only thing they have to drink there's a a lake that uh has the cows and everything else drinking out of it cow patties are inside the water um and you can see people collecting water at the same time that cows are drinking from it right beside them uh people are washing clothes in it they're washing motorcycles in it um and then that's their drinking water and so we're putting up this water kiosk where yeah we're going to charge them five cents when they get five gallons of clean water but those are going to turn into multiple water wells throughout the year. And so we're trying to do all these sustainable solutions to where after we do that in Rwanda, we're taking that to the Congo. That'll be close to the soap production facility and the community development center we're going to have, which will have land, water, food solutions, um, even the forestry. Well, we've helped replant over 4,000 trees now in the Congo. And it's like because the deforestation is so brutal. So I think it's just sitting back and saying, what do you guys need? Listening and learning that need and saying, okay, where can we fit in? How can we help in this area? Who's a specialist? How can we really make an impact? I think our lane is definitely water. I mean, from that Chief Leome village uh, or the story that you just saw, Babofi, where he made that knife for you, um, you can see that water changes everything. And so that's going to be what hubs, that's our hub. That's that's our lane. And that's what all of the Water 4 teams are doing. But in the Congo, because the pygmies are so vulnerable, we're trying to find the ways to help them come up. And as they come up, other people are watching and looking, and they're starting to implement the same kind of things. So it's pretty cool um, to see that happening. And before I forget, the reason I wanted to show that video was I got you something. This is Leo May's wife. So you have the, you have the, the knife from Leo May. His wife made you this right here. And so because from our second JRE episode, I believe, uh, we funded a water well there in Bobofi. And so, uh, she's really talented. Um, I mean, it might not look like too much here, but, uh, it's cool. What is it made out of? It's bark cloth. So it's a tree bark cloth. And when they take the the bark off the trees, fine. But they, uh, that used to be what they would make their clothing out of their clothing. They would make other materials out of them. Uh, they can make these little kind of carrying cases or backpacks kind of out of it do they treat it with something like how do they get it so soft they pound it down and i haven't seen the whole process but i've seen the bark and where they pull it off and then they kind of beat it down and beat it down um, until it's this like cloth i know that this right here wow. when i've been doing research 
they have those pygmy, uh, Mabuti pygmy paintings that are made out of bark cloth at like our National Museum of History in New York. Um, they have a few of these there. And so it's kind of cool to see. I don't know. I just was, uh, was excited to bring it back oh, to you. I think awesome, I got a man. picture of, uh, said painting oh, well. and, um, it's, it's mama Leo May and she's, uh, she's painting it for you. So that's awesome, man. Thank you. Yeah. And thank her, please. I will. That's so cool. I will. They wow. just have, when I go back, sometimes they're like, Hey, like, oh, that's think, her making it there. Thank your friends. Yeah. So wow. that one's not the same one. I actually didn't think to, or I didn't get a picture of it whenever she was painting this one, but I got a picture of her doing some other ones. That's Mama Swazi, and uh, she's pretty great at it as well. And um, so they just, uh, yeah, I mean, that's a little bowl, little leaves. Um, this paint that you actually have there was, they had some leftover black paint, but sometimes on that other photo, they just use like cassava or berries and they beat it up, uh, pound it down and make this paint out of it, but it kind of fades over time. So this one's one where, yeah, that's that's it right there where they just pound up the stuff and it's part of their culture it's what they love to do they kind of how you saw leo may uh, passing down uh you know the farming and that video was actually san Gui over here from that handprint that you oh. you got the, it's his grandson um and this is what the women pass down to their girls is how to make the spark cloth and how to um how to paint so wow it's pretty neat their culture like they just do everything together they rally around each other they're happy together, they sing, they dance, but they also suffer together. If one person in the community is lost, even for instance, uh, so it might sound weird in our culture, but let's say a mother passes away who's dear, like she's breastfeeding, right? And she passes away, but the baby survives. Some other woman in the village will take the baby up and start uh, taking care of that little one. And um, there is an adoption in the pygmy culture. Like you, no one, no one needs to be adopted because the community rallies around them. When someone's lost, they all mourn the death together, but then they rally around that family and see how they can all help and put in. So it's pretty cool. I love it. I've, I've learned a lot from them. Well, that's how people used to be, man. Yeah. That's, that's the original sort of tr tribal life of human beings. They, they would all raise each other. Christopher Ryan had this whole um, uh, take on it in Sex at Dawn, you know, and, and McKenna had a take on it as well uh, where they were talking about these ancient cultures, they, because of these small groups of people, they they were much closer. They they knew everyone in the community. It was intensely important, and that they, there's a lot of people that think that some of the problems that we deal with today in society are because of this disassociation that we have Absolutely. with our neighbors, and we don't have a real sense of community. I mean, I know like two or three of my neighbors, and I see them once a year. Yeah, you know, I say hi, wave, how's everything, man? Everything cool? All right, good seeing you. But that's it. You know, yeah. there's no real community. There's no interaction. There's no there's certainly no contribution as far as like working together to gather food or water mm -hmm. or anything like that. And I would imagine that these people were just intensely close. Yeah, absolutely. Man. That must have been a big part of the attraction <clears throat> to you, to them, like when they took you in and you were right. living with them. And Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the average Mabuti Pygmy village is only 85 to 150 on our 10 villages that we help and have the 3000 acres of land. Um, it's over 300 uh, for each village. Um, Do you know about Dunbar's number? Mm -mm. Dunbar's number is a, a number that, I mean, it varies, but the number somewhere around 150 for most people. There's huh. a, a number of people that you can keep close relationships with. Oh, wow. That you really only have room for 150 people in your head. You essentially have hard drive space. Wow. Yeah. And 
that seems to be related to ancient tribal communities that people that had sense. that we developed that way. Yeah. We developed these these small groups of 50 to 150 plus people. Yeah. And no, then when that, you get larger than that, things get weird. Yeah. Well, no, that's that's so true. Like I whenever I went through the six-year battle with Oxy and just uh, narcotics or pain pills, like I, I, um, I don't know, I would always be able to isolate super easy, right? Because when you're in your home, you're completely alone. Yeah, um, yeah. And so it's different when you're in a village and with the pygmies, you saw some of those huts, how, how small they are. Yeah. You know, uh, seriously, in several of them, whenever I'm sleeping, I have to sleep in the center and I have to have my feet out the door um, yeah. because it's so small. Uh, but it's um, the only go in there when you're going to sleep uh, or if you're not feeling good and you need some rest or the sun's right over your head and you're hot. Um, but besides that, you're cooking, your kitchen's outside. Um that's where the people is. That's where you do life is outside of your home, uh, around the campfire. We call it campfire university. Cause that's where we've been taken to school from the, from the pygmies. Uh, that's where they teach us the most about life is around the campfire, learning their culture, learning about their kids, learning about the hunts, learning about how they make this, make that. Um, and it's where you get to do life together. And so it's something really, really cool. Uh, honestly, I told them they want to know a little bit about my life. And I told them that I went through drug addiction for six years and, you know, they don't really struggle with that at all. And, uh, and then I told them I got really depressed and I told them I got really sad. And I told them that I got so sad that I decided one time to take as many pills as I could and drink, uh, it was like half a bottle of Everclear or more, um, and snorted a bunch of Coke and just wanted to end it all. So, I mean, I, I told him that I was suicidal. And, um, and I, can't, I, I won't ever forget how they, how they looked at me, almost dumbfounded in a way of like, and then, and then one of the questions the chief asked me said, well, wouldn't hurting you, yourself, wouldn't hurting yourself only hurt you? And uh, so the whole concept of, uh, I guess what I'm getting to is they had never heard of anyone killing themselves. Like uh, maybe they had heard stories or something like that, but they have never known anybody that actually killed themselves or heard of it. It's not something that their community, their culture, the pygmies kind of untouched out in the forest or even not uh, up in the cities. Like that's just something that they don't struggle with there. They're struggling so much day in and day out with struggles that are so deep and they see their family and they do life together that I think they just have so much more of what we were just talking about, so much more of a support system people that will rally around them. When you lose a family member, everyone rallies around you. Like whenever I go to the funerals, it's the, it's the worst thing in the world. The sounds like people don't try to compose themselves. They don't try to dress the body real nice and have flowers all around. And now, now losing loss of life is always tough, always terrible. Um, but there's something we do here in our culture where we make it, um, try to make it as, as nice or smooth or almost pretty as possible. You know, the person's dressed really nice and has the flowers and you compose yourself to come there. You gather yourself, you prepare the eulogy. There's a, there's a program when you step in there, people get handed something and you know what's going to happen there. So you kind of can all compose man there. It's just so ugly. It's so raw. It's so real. And it's so like in your face and it just rips your heart open to where People are mourning. I, I saw Jay Lua, um 
whenever Babo, I was the one, me and Ben were the ones that told Jilawa, he's a chief, um, about his grandson passing away. We were there when it happened. He wasn't around. He was out collecting or gathering. Um, and we met on the same path together and he saw it in our face that he knew Babo was sick, but now he knew that he was gone. And I remember Jilawa just falling on his back into this off the side of the footpath into like this pile of brush, like a, like, like probably two, three foot tall where he like sunk into it and he was just squirming on his back. You know, he's like in his sixties and he's watched so many of his grandchildren like pass just cause they don't have clean water and seeing him squirming, almost wanting to like crawl out of his skin, you know? Um, and so, but, I, I don't know. I don't want to be a bummer. I, I'm, I'm just, uh, no, just express yourself. Don't it's, worry about that. it's, but then how the whole community, all 150, 200, 300 people that were there, uh, all mourned together. Like we shared it. Like I, I cried in a way that was like, <laughs> you know, like, like, right. te- like wiping my tears with everybody. Cause everyone, everyone was mourning everyone was crying it wasn't just a few people it wasn't just his mom and his dad his mom macho it it wasn't just jailua it was the whole village cried together and so i don't know but for me that that makes it seem like i don't know if this i don't want to make too many connections between our culture because they're completely different or a lot different but i think here a huge cause of divorce is the loss of a child um but there it almost unites the parents um so much so whenever they lose a little one and i don't i don't mean to make this comparison but it's like i think it's because when they mourn they truly go to the depths of the darkest place and they're able to truly almost get it out if that makes sense mm-hmm. where when you're at the funeral you let yourself go you just let go and 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 it's okay however ugly or however you handle it whatever emotions come you just ride that wave if that makes sense do you think that because their life is so difficult that life itself becomes more precious and the loss becomes more powerful or more intense more wow. more raw wow yeah i needed you to to sum that up for sure um yes i i do i think whenever you struggle so much you're, you become so much more appreciative and grateful of life, of every breath you take. Um, well, that's yeah. gotta be connected to their lack of understanding of suicide because yeah. our, you know, our idea of what a difficult life is, it's difficult, but there's food and shelter and mm-hmm. there's, you know, and really the easiest place to live in the world, all those things connected. Whereas with them just staying alive is such a struggle and getting water, which is so easy for us. Oh, we, anybody yeah. can walk in any bathroom and any gas stop, turn the water on, water comes out. I mean, yeah. everywhere you get water's not hard to get in America. Mm-hmm. I mean, even with droughts, it's easy to get water. We water fucking golf courses with millions of gallons of water every day. Yeah. Our understanding of what a struggle is, is so different. Yeah. And I think whenever we, whenever we struggle here, we can go hide away and we don't have to deal with it. Right. We don't have to have conversations about it. Um, we can we can almost escape it. We can escape it with our with our toys, with our technology. You know, we can we can just bury our face in our phone or a computer or sit and watch a movie. And like whenever those uncomfortable feelings come up, we can try to ignore them or suppress them 
if that makes sense. Yeah. And there, they're so, it's almost, man, this is going to be a weird, strange curveball or left turn, but it's almost like uh, I've started floating recently. And whenever I go in there um, into the tank, it's like you have to, you're, you're left alone to your thoughts, right? Mm. You don't have that technology. You don't have this. And so you can deal with stuff. And you can try to focus and let go. And, and for me, it's been really beneficial. And so I don't, I know that sounds weird for me to make that connection, but, uh, but whenever you're just left alone with your own thoughts, you can go deep. Yeah. And I feel like our culture here, well, okay. In, if we compare, and I love our culture, there's, I'm not saying there's so much wrong with it, but, uh, but I feel like there in relationships, you go an inch or two wide and you go a mile deep in the Congo, you get to know people. And then here, a lot of times you go a mile wide, but you go only, you only scratch the surface. You don't go beneath the topsoil that much. Um, so you do sometimes with, with few people. Um, there's only few people we, we trust with that, you know, but it's almost like there, everyone's so open to, um, to going deep with one another. And because of that, you get to know each other better. You get to truly hurt when they hurt. You get to laugh when they laugh. You get to cry when they cry. Um, and man, I don't, I don't have to keep going on about it. But no, it's, please, it's, it's, listen. Uh, don't apologize. There's a real, um, there's a real argument for the the way that we live right now is not a way that we were designed for. Meaning that not that it can't be sustainable or manageable, and you can't figure out a way to live a harmonious life in the modern context. Right. But that a lot of people think that we're just we would naturally fit right in in a tribal environment, that it would feel natural. And a lot of people experience that when they go camping for long stretches of time and they're out in the woods together, you know, for whatever reason. They just decide to find a a place and live off the land. I mean, that's why I think a lot of those shows, like those um, subsistence living shows, like um, those... Homesteading kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. That's very... It's very attractive to people Mm -hmm. because I think... There's a longing in our, our DNA even where it just – there's a pull. There's a pull to that. Man, I would love to just grow kale and raise chickens mm-hmm. and live off the farm. I mean, there's a lot of people that feel like really, really attracted to that. And I think it's, it's something deep in our being that we're longing for this connection to the real world. We've done an amazing thing creating cities. It's, it's stupendous. It's, a, it's almost beyond – our comprehension because we're a part of it. You know, we're a part of it. It's normal. You get on the subway, you get in your car, you drive through the city. It seems normal, but it's so far removed from every single aspect of our history. Mm. I mean, this is so new. It's so recent. I think these people are just more in tune. I mean, it's horrible that they have to deal with these situations like the lack of water and toilets and the diseases and all the, the the other struggle, but man, there's a part of what they're doing and the way they're living that just seems like they're more in tune in a natural way. Yeah, right. You would think that they would be more depressed, right? And uh, but but like you heard, you heard Leo May's laughing that yeah. when they asked him about the bananas, and he just got tickled. You know, he couldn't couldn't hold himself from just laughing, saying, "I can't count that much." You take someone from Beverly Hills and say, "Hey, this is what we got for you. You can grow bananas now." They're like, "Fuck you! <laughs> How do I get out of here? First class only." You know, right? Where's my iPhone? Uh-huh. Yeah, so. it's it's weird, man. Because essentially, this life is temporary ride for all of us involved. Mm-hmm. No one has ever got out of this thing alive. No one. No one will. It's not going to be you. It's not going to be me. 
We're not going to make it. No one makes it. No one's ever made it before. No one's ever going to make it. So it's essentially like, what is the quality of your experience while you're here and how much people, how many people are you touching? And by that life, by that definition, you've lived one of the richest lives that a person could ever live. Thank you. Uh, Do you realize that? I you feel, trip me I out every time I'm around you. I feel like a piece of shit. <laughs> no, I don't want anyone to feel that way at all. <laughs> I don't really mean that. I mean, but, I'm kidding. Yeah. But I mean, yeah. in a way, you're so selfless in that regard. Well, I, I just, okay, if I just connect it back to that, I remember little Jippy. He got about 10. Um, he's Chief Alondo's grandson. Um, Chief Leo May's brother is Chief Alondo. And his grandson, Jippy, uh, had gotten paid basically 10, 12 maximum probably 14 or 15 peanuts he worked all day long he's a five or six year old child that worked from sun up to sundown and that's what he got paid was five or yeah up to 15 uh peanuts and so a little handful in his little hand and he came and he sat by me and i just kind of put my arm around him and said how you doing and he just instantly like put his hand out for me to have and like he he went like this and he got like half for him and got half for me and just put half of his peanuts in my hand. I'm like, you just worked all day long for that, you know, like from sun up to sundown, but they're just so incredibly generous, you know, Hey, what's mine is yours. And what's yours. I mean, like it's fun to kind of sit around uh, the fire sometimes and eat because uh, I mean, it's, it's rude in our culture and everything else. But, uh, but I just, I just enjoyed it whenever people would start eating off my plate and I'd eat off their plate and it just kind of becomes part of it. Yeah. Yeah, or there's just a kind of a pile in the middle or big plate, big thing, and it's like, hey, this is what we have. Let's uh, let's share. Let's uh, let's make sure we share everything together. Now, sorry to interrupt you, but besides the farming and besides the clean water, what other what other changes have you witnessed? Okay, so Jippy, um, which is so cool, he's like my little buddy. Getting to watch him grow up, and he's going to be chief one day, and uh, so. When they we just, got there, they determined that like that young. Yeah, so his father had passed away, and he would have become the chief. But uh, how so do they chief decide Orlando, who's the chief and who's not? There's not an election process or anything. Um, basically, there is uh, just among the village. Whenever I think I, I forget, I need to ask Chief Orlando how he got kind of voted in or whatever. But he was just the one that showed the leadership qualities, the one that everyone followed, uh, the one that was most respected, the one that was kind of the most. Uh, knowledgeable or caring. That's a huge thing for them. Who's going to think about our interest the most and, um, and then be strong enough to like be tough whenever he needs to be tough. And so chief Alano, he's got incredible leadership skills. Um, like just a, a great guy. He was one of the first ones that bought into the vision for us to come in with the land, water and food. A lot of people didn't trust us thinking, Oh, they're saying this and they have those tools that look like they're going to drill wells, but really they might be surveying for gold or diamonds or coltan. Mm. Who knows? They're just maybe using us as a cover, but he was one that stood up in the community and was like, no, we believe them. We're going to work with them. And so from that, he's been able to go out and um, tell other communities what's happened in their village and so one of the things that he's able to go do is say how water has changed everything to where they we were able to get land to secure that so we could come in and drill the wells for them. Then after that, they were able to start farming. And then you saw them go in and selling it at the markets to where they can buy clothes for their kids. Well, it's not just about clothes. Um, little Jippy, last time I was there, getting ready to leave. Um, he's always around. And I had just been able to be there for the weekend. And I was only being able to stay there for three days this trip in that village because we were going to some other places. But I always stop and see him. And so we're leaving and I don't get to see kind of my, my little buddy. And I'm like, where's, where's Jippy at? 
like, oh, you'll see him as you go. And so we got in the truck and we start driving out. And all of a sudden, little Jippy comes out of the schoolhouse and he's running to us. And I got to get out and give him a hug, tell him bye. Um, but what's so huge is he was the first Mabuti pygmy ever in school in that region, that area that they know of. And so from kind of getting a little bit more equal rights, but then also being able to pay for themselves. Uh, you know, there's supposed to be a government program where the pygmies can go to school um, and go for free, but they're like the only ones. They're kind of like the Native Americans of, of, of Congo. Um, they have basically zero rights, but that's one that the government has said. But normally it's not honored. And secondly, um, they don't go to school if they need to be spending time hunting or gathering because no kid's going to sit in school while he's hungry. He's not going to be able to focus. Right. So for him to be able to have food to take to school is a huge thing so that he can sit there. For them to be able to pay the school fees on their own, they didn't take that. They, they said, no, we don't want the government program saying we can come to school for free. We're going to pay his school fees. He's going to be chief one day. We're investing into him. Wow. And so to, to know that once, once there's some educated Mabuti pygmies, that takes away the last excuse that I see for the government to not honor them as like true citizens of the country. Um, they have no representation on the government level, zero, but there's over 200 tribes there. All of them have representation, but, uh, for years it was because, or for always, it was because they thought they were half man, half animal. Well, now it's, um, it's because they say no one's educated. No one's ever graduated from primary school or, or secondary school. No one's ever graduated with a high school degree. And so until that happens, no, Mabuti Pygmy can, or they, they don't have representation. So wow. we're hoping that as they get schooling, they'll be able to go to the courts and represent themselves and have more rights in their community and culture. I don't know if I've ever told you that, but um, a real dark part of the the Pygmy history uh, or Congolese history and what, we, what people have done to them, what we have done to them. Uh, 1902 to 1906, uh, we had a Mabuti pygmy from the Ituri rainforest, right where I've lived and stayed, and we put him in the zoo. Yeah. Did I say that? Yeah, we, we did yeah. talk no, about okay. that. His name was Ota I think Binga. we talked about it on the podcast, but yeah, it's okay. horrific. Yeah. His name was Ota Binga, and we literally fed him bananas in the monkey house at the Bronx Zoo in New York. So we threw him bananas while he lived there with the monkeys. And, Jesus uh, Christ. And a human being like that. And so, uh, you know, that was uh, over 100 years ago, but it's almost like in those regions where they don't have land or water, or sorry, they don't have running water and electricity and a lot of the education that we do here, some places are kind of stuck in this pocket that's kind of about a hundred years back. Um, and so some of that mentality still exists. So this could be the beginning steps in just completely changing their culture, mm. educating that's them. That's what we're seeing. Having, having a chief come out and say, this is the first official ever land that Mabuti Pygmies own in our government's history. This is the first water well, clean water source ever among the Mobuti pygmies that they've ever owned. First time they're ever farming for themselves and going to the market and selling it. That had local radio station. Um, there's only like one and it's in the rainforest a few hours away, but they came out to the market to do a story uh, with Chief Leome and them because they were actually selling their produce. And they're like, what? The pygmies have always been hunter gatherers well the deforestation has made it basically impossible for them to completely sustain themselves off hunting and gathering animals are scared and skittish and they run away from the trees that when they fall sound like thunder going through the forest so it makes it really hard to to, to go hunt um and be able to feed a whole tribe you know a whole village and so uh yeah to be able to say these are this is the first time they're farming and selling this you know it, it just they're getting more and more I don't know. It's like they're, they're catching up with 
um, the people around them. And we want them to do it at a slow pace that they want. So keep everything culturally sound for them. But what they do want to bring into their culture, we want to rally behind that. Wow. That's powerful, dude. You're, you're there at the, the steps of their culture changing. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're, you're right there. Well, it's been, it's been changing or, or it's been corrupted so much because of, because of the outside influences coming in with the, the chainsaws, you know, that are yeah. the, the me- mechanized ones where they can just start cutting the trees down at such uh, a crazy rate. Yeah, I've seen those um, monster machines. They're terrifying. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. They strip the bark off of it all in one movement, mm-hmm. cut it down. Oh, man. Isn't that nuts, some of those? It's scary. Yeah. Like it's, it's like science fiction movie stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they have that because there's a lot of it's not as advanced as that, but um, they have guys just constantly day in and day out that it's almost like uh, ants following each other through the forest, but they have bicycles and they throw these uh, long 20-foot planks of uh, mahogany, or I think it's, uh, isn't it ebony, that that other really heavy uh, hardwood, and they're just taking those out of the forest all day long, uh, just in lines. There's a line of people going with empty bicycles, and there's a line coming back out with it full of wood. And they just are legally deforesting, putting it in the back of these uh, 18-wheelers that normally have two uh, trailers on the back of them, or two containers on the back, and they fill them to the top. And uh, that's where a lot of the bridges collapse because they're going over, they're overloaded. I have a picture of that. That was a wild, um, a wild time where... We got behind this uh, this lorry that was ahead of us. We didn't see it collapse or anything like that, but uh, but we knew that they were carrying way too much weight to cross the bridges that we had crossed earlier. And so we knew, oh man, I hope that bridge is still is still up and running by the time we get back. Oh, no. um, and then it just completely uh, caved in and crashed. Wow, look at that bridge. <laughs> that bridge is ridiculous. Yeah, and so that was built. In- How did they get across that? Well, they, they drove across that. They were driving. Yeah, that was, was there that planks was the on top of it or something. Yeah, wooden planks, and that's what we would drive across all the time to go out and drill our wells and stuff. But the guys legally logging and carrying way too much weight. Legally, is that what you're saying? Illegally. 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 Oh, so they're illegally logging. Yeah, yeah. I thought you were saying legally. No, sorry, illegally. Uh, oh man. So, so what kind of reinforcement do they have in their laws, like the deforestation laws? Uh, basically, nothing. I mean, they say it's illegal, but. But everybody Everyone does it turns anyway. a blind eye because they're getting paid Massive. off in bribes. And yeah. Well, there's a lot else. of money involved in hardwood. Oh, yeah. Especially those rare African hardwoods. Mm-hmm. And that's where the rubber boom basically started was Congo by the Belgians. King Leopold II, he wrote a crazy – or there's a crazy book written about him, King Leopold's Ghost. talks about how that was the African Holocaust and basically that Congo had 20 million in population, but 8 to 10 million people were killed throughout the Belgians coming and colonizing uh, the Congo. Um, and he, he paraded around like he was the hero of Congo and we're bringing infrastructure and business and they're getting rich and they're growing and they're getting water and buildings and they're advancing so much. And he would go on these public campaigns basically talking about all the good they're doing in the Congo. But basically uh, you can see these terrible, brutal pictures of basically a father, I think, reaching out to his child's hand that's on the ground because they took a machete and cut his kid's hand off and he's reaching out to grab it and he doesn't have hands because they had already cut his hands off too. And so it's just been since it's just been brutal there always because they, the, it was the rubber and ivory boom 
And then after that, now it's the rare hardwoods, the gold, the coltan, the uranium. Coltan, which they use to make cell phones with. Yeah, it conducts yeah. electricity at a really high rate, but it stays cool so it doesn't overheat or blow up on you. And I think 80% of the world's coltan comes from the Congo. And basically all of it's illegal mining, uh, ran so, by rebels and everything else. Yeah, that's the dirty secret about people's phones and a lot of the electronics that we use. Yeah. Yeah, but Fuck. man, it's... Uh, but it's been it's been an incredible um, journey to be part of because I couldn't have dreamed this I wouldn't have I wouldn't have thought it up or uh, didn't have it on my goals list didn't have it on my radar as a kid yeah but you're so perfect um, for it that's what's so crazy it seems like it's kind of changed you as a human being without and it solidified you yeah. in a lot of ways like the conviction that you fight with it's not just that of a competitor it's like a, a man with a, a, a not even just a goal like a destiny. It's very strange. You know, you're you're doing something that's bigger than most people can even comprehend. And I feel like the, the weight of that is pushing you forward in this uh, this really incredible way to watch. I don't know anybody like you, man. <laughs> you're the only guy I know like you. You're the only guy I know like you, my friend. So interesting and so so many awesome people that you've been able to interview and have them pour into your life and you pour into theirs and because of that there's so many cool things that are happening man i mean honestly i'm just grateful to have your friendship and have this opportunity to share because it's helped out so much us be able to do this well, and same i'm thing very great, very grateful people. as well very grateful as well and yeah. i also feel like this i mean i can't even take credit for this thing this thing made itself yeah how did even, this i don't know turn into this you I know i don't know i don't know what this thing is this thing i just have to show up and try not to fuck it up that's what i try to do i try to show up and not fuck it up yeah, but it's so nice. Well, you know what? Uh, the float tank center that I go to in uh, Oklahoma, it's called Float OKC. On my first, no, second time in there, uh, they were like, oh, you didn't check the box of how you heard of this. And uh, it was like friend, family, this or that, and then Joe Rogan. <laughs> because they started up because of you. And like they were talking about, hey, you know, there's probably 20 or 30 in the country before Joe started talking about it on the podcast. And now it's just grown so there's much. hundreds of them. It's yeah, crazy. I think there's over 300. Yeah. People say, do you have a piece of those? I'm like, nope. Yeah. No, good, good. Keep going. I don't want any money. Yeah. You know, more power to them. I think it's an amazing way to change the way you look at the world and see yourself mm. and be alone with your thoughts. And I just think it's, uh, it's one of the best tools for human development. Oh, that's I, awesome. I just think it's incredible. I just I'm, I was shocked when more people didn't know about it. Mm. I mean, I had one in my house in 2002. Wow. Two, somewhere around there. Look at that. Yeah, 2003. That's awesome. You know, one of the reasons why I got this house was because it had a basement. And I'm like, "Ooh, perfect place for a tank." Mm. I'm like, "That's I, you know, I'm I look at houses all fucked up. I'm like, do I have enough room in the backyard to shoot my bow? Yes. Is there a tank room? Yeah, I mean, that's like how I look at houses now. That's cool. So how do you, if it's okay, how do you use, I floated eight times now mm -hmm. and the, I've finally done a two hour float, which was, I think a, a lot more beneficial doing oh, it yeah. a little bit longer. That's the game changer. Oh man, that was awesome. And then, but Wednesday before my fight on Friday, uh, March 3rd, I went in and I had this intention where Neil from Florida KC was like, Hey, why don't you, instead of just rushing in here from training or rushing in here from, uh, from the office at water four. Like, come in 30 minutes early, kind of sit down, 
chill, close your eyes, like, you know, set an intention mm. um, and then do it. And I came in and I had watched a documentary called Float Nation. Um, <laughs> and uh, it was cool because like an hour, hour and a half. And it showed uh, a lot of different things, but it showed some scientific stuff of uh, of sports psychologists and basically visualization. And then I've done some more research and there's this like place in Tulsa that has some brain doctors or, I mean, doctors that are researching neuroscience and different stuff, but they're finally doing a clinical study with people with anxiety and depression. It's finally fully funded. Um, and the guy was talking about it and was saying that basically the same exact results that anti-anxiety medicine has, the float tank can do a hundred percent naturally and that the studies are coming out to back it up. And so it's just really cool. But the tank Wednesday, I basically visualized the fight exactly the way it went down on Friday. I just had this intense time. That was the best float I've, I've had was just sitting there thinking about the fight, thinking about the fight, thinking about the fight and saying everything that I wanted to do. It was almost like I went to training before, then I got, and I was drilling the moves I wanted to do in the fight. Then I went into the tank and I, and I, right before that, so I was drilling early that morning. Um, everything that I wanted to do in the fight, kind of visualizing before I went into the tank. Then when I came out, I was, or before I got in the tank after training, I started to watch fight film on him, see how he's moving. And then I went into the tank and I was able to just think about what he's going to do, think about what I'm going to do, how I'm going to implement it. And then it's nuts. Like the only thing, only difference was, is I got two big throws instead of one big throw. Um, in the vision, I had one throw. And then in the fight, I had two big throws, but the ground and pound straight into the arm triangle, exactly what I had been envisioning. So when you say personal development, I'm like, man, I get it. Like, so how do you do it? What do you, I mean, I don't know if that makes sense. Like, uh, I'm wanting to learn how to go deep with it and just let go and use it as a tool of personal development. Yeah. The more often you can get into it, the more you get relaxed and the more you can sort of slip into that comfortable state of not feeling the water or feeling the air and just being in your mind, see nothing, feel nothing, released from your body. And then I'll either go in there with ideas, like maybe I'll go in there. I've, I've done, gone over jujitsu in there. I've gone over different martial arts techniques in there where you sort of visualize movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a lot of it I use, I do, I'll go over material, like I've, I'll have ideas. Sometimes it fucks up my float where I have an idea that I can't let go. Like I, I have to set something up where I have a voice-activated recorder inside the float tank where I can talk. But part of me doesn't want to talk while I'm in there. I just want to be alone with my thoughts because yeah. I think when you talk, it'll take you out of it. But there's some, some ideas that I don't want to escape me because ideals are slippery, man. They, yeah. they, you know, you have a great idea. Like sometimes I'll have a great idea when I'm in bed and I'm like, oh, I'll remember that. I don't remember it ever. <laughs> like you fucking ever. I might remember one out of ten that I think I'm going to remember. So I'm probably going to have to figure out some way to record things while I'm in the tank. But for me, um, you know, it depends on what I'm trying to do. Yeah. Just trying to just be balanced. Think about life. Think about my behavior. Think about my my interaction with people. You know, my as uh, do I have as um, as much energy and 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 appreciation as I should? Do I have as much gratitude as I should? You know, I want to. I just want to optimize my thought process. You know, and mm-hmm. I know. I'm, definitely not claiming that I do or that I always have it right. I definitely don't. It's an ongoing process. And that's one of the realities of being a person, the idea of the perfect person that just doesn't exist. And I think it's a bad, it's a bad model to strive for. And instead you should strive for doing your best whenever you can, as Mm -hmm. much as you can. And I think that reviewing your thoughts 
and reviewing um, your your whole mental process is a very important part of optimization about being your best and just taking account and looking at it from I think it's one of the rare moments where you're actually alone with your thoughts you know where there's no uh, influence of the body the the distractions of the body of just even the weight of sitting down feeling your your butt on the chair your your elbows on this desk all those things are factors and they're they're being calculated by your mind and the way the analogy that I always use is if you and I were having this conversation but right next to us was a jackhammer it would be super distracting mm. But that's just input. That jackhammer is just its just profound input. And I think that everything is input. Social cues, looking at people, sounds, feeling, touch, gravity. All those things are input that is going into the mind that your mind has to calculate. In the absence of any input, whether it's physical, touch, you feel like you're flying through space, you feel zero gravity, you don't feel the water because it's the same temperature as your skin, yeah. you're floating in it, it's total silence, total darkness. In the absence of that, input i think your brain becomes super powered mm-hmm. i think it becomes supercharged and i think you get to see things in a much clearer way and i've i've, I've saw seen myself at fault when i thought i was innocent i've seen myself uh happy and and fulfilled when i thought i was longing i've it's given me a much more balanced perspective and a better way of addressing the realities of the complexities of life mm. man that's great that's it's, awesome. It's a powerful tool, man. And yeah. it's, it was weird to me that around 2002, when I really started talking about it, that nobody knew what the fuck it was. I was like, how is this a weird... How, how am I the guy who's talking about this? How's the UFC commentator, the guy who's talking about floating? I mean, it just didn't make any sense to me. Yeah. No, I, I, I don't think I... I mean, you had talked about it, and I knew about it, but it wasn't until I got in the tank and came out of the tank for the first time that then I got it. Yeah. It was like, Oh man, like this is awesome. And the physical <laughs> aspects yeah. of it, the way the magnesium makes uh-huh. your body feel and the, the looseness of the, the being in the zero gravity environment, what feels like zero gravity, everything gets loose. It just relaxes. Mm. The back relaxes, the arms, the knees, the, the neck, everything just gets loose in there and you come out just feeling good. You want to hug people. Oh yeah. I know. That's exactly <laughs> how I came out. I came out and had a smile from ear to ear. And when I came out of it, they're like, Oh you have that post float glow. And I actually yeah. gave the guy a hug. Yeah, I didn't even know man. his name, but gave him a big hug, and it was so cool, man. And it's neat. Uh, the The float community seems like uh, like like everyone's just chill. Everyone that has a deeper um, appreciation for li- that might be too much, but it seems like everyone's got a deeper appreciation for life. Where they they just um, I don't know. I think I there's know, something into what makes... you're saying. I, it sounds pretentious. Yeah, it does. But you're right. There is something there. I know what you're saying. It's like saying that. I don't know. It's, there's something special about it. it. And I think a big part of what that something special is, is the alleviation of tension. Mm. And I think tension, much like inflammation causes a lot of diseases and a lot of disorders that people have pertaining to diet. And th- that inflammation causes like, like you were talking about with uh, your uh, celiac. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, that is a lot of it is based on inflammation, right? Right. I think tension is uh, in, in many ways, the physical tension is also uh, another uh, real boundary to comfort. And that physical tension is alleviated greatly when you're in that tank. And I think when you're more comfortable, you're more relaxed. When you're more relaxed, you're more open. When you're more open, you're more loving. Mm. I think all those things sort of cascade. 
Yeah. You know, they, they, they feed on each other and they help. And when a tense person that's like stressful, like fuck, 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 you know, god damn it, you know, it's really hard to like be calm and kind. You know, it's like you're so wound up. I think that thing removes a lot of the physical aspects of being wound up. And then on top of that, the deep meditative effects of being in that tank, especially if you go into it like you did with a, like a vision or a direction and a, a, a thought to work on. I think it, it does wonders for for your thought process. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm still learning about it because the first couple of times I was just trying to just wipe my mind clean, and it coming out stress completely stress free, feeling completely stress free yeah. at least was awesome. And then going in there with an intention and with a goal, with a fight just a couple of days away, I don't I don't know that this is what happened, but in training I had been feeling great. But then it felt like something just turned on or started firing where it connected like the mental visualization to the physical of actually going in there and doing it the exact way that I saw it was something that just that kind of blew my mind. It was it was cool to see that happen um, because you'd want to see the match or the fight a hundred times in your head before you ever go out mm. there and do it. Um, I mean, not not put things in it to where if it goes bad or if it doesn't go exactly the way in the fight that then you freak out during the fight. But you want to have a goal and an intention and know what you're going to do in there. I think that's probably what Connor did when he was fighting Aldo. He mm. he knew he was going to go in there and end it quick. And he saw that happening. And so um, not, not saying, I don't well, want to put words in his mouth. Do you note, remember but, when he talked about it after the Eddie Alvarez fight? He said, I, I had a vision of me standing here with the second belt. Like, where the fuck is me other belt? Yeah. He was like really upset. Like, <laughs> oh, he's yeah, like, you're I right. A, I visualized this. Uh-huh. I want it. And then yeah. Tyron Woodley, of all people. They had to give his he, belt, right? Oh, it's really cool that they did that. Yeah. The, that Tyron allowed that to happen. Kudos to him. But mm-hmm. that, that, you know, the visualization of a goal is very important to, like, solidifying this idea of what that goal is in your mind. Visualization has been um, – there's been studies done on visualization in, as far as athletics and, and skill learning. And some people believe it is as important as physical practice, mm. which is kind of crazy, you know? Yeah, no, I, I can see that. Um, I mean, Kenny Monday, who's been involved in the MMA community quite a lot, he was my high school wrestling coach. And uh, he told me, go home, write a goal, put it somewhere you can see it. So I wrote down, uh, he told me to write down state champ, but I wrote down national champ and I put it above my bed. And then over, you know, working with him, training, getting some wrestling moves, I put a... a step around body lock on the left and I put a, a lateral drop on the right. And so my, fr- my favorite wrestling move on the left and my second favorite wrestling move on the right. And when I won my first national championship, it was with the move on the left. And when I won my second, it was with the move on the right. And so it was, I was going to bed, thinking about it, dreaming about it, waking up, starting my day, thinking about it and, uh, and wanting to really put that in action. And so I, I totally, get it and i i need to be more conscious of it and dive even deeper into it because i'm like you i i agree that um or at least i can see the point and how it's valid that the mental focus and energy and visualizing is pretty much just as important as actually physically doing it it's huge and all of them together are really what it's all about yeah. it's none of the no no, no the aspect other. yeah no aspect can be ignored um i gotta get out of here soon is there yeah. anything else you want to tell people about or wrap this up Man, we can we can get to wrapping it up, but uh, real quick, we have two goals going on right now. Where um, at water4.org, we're doing a World Water Day campaign. Uh, we threw up a goal to raise a, it's an audacious goal to do that water tank, water tower, water kiosk system. 
Uh, it's going to serve 4,000 people and then create more water wells. It's a $50,000 goal, but we've already raised 35. Someone yesterday gave 25 grand to it. Wow. Um, and so we're, we're, we got a, a, about a week left. And uh, we're hoping to get another 15 because if that happens, we're able to really make that sustainable, that team there in, in Rwanda. Um, and then, I mean, we... So for that, people go to water4.org? Yeah, water4.org. If they go to my water, social number media, four dot number four dot org, and then it's like campaign. It's, it's our World Water Day campaign. I think I have it up right now on my social media, on Twitter and on Instagram. It's the, the link, uh, like the website or the link in the bio. Um, it's the actual campaign link. So if you just go to at the big pygmy on Instagram or Twitter, um, you can just click right there and get right to the campaign. And yeah, and, and for people that can give one time, uh, that's, that's where you can give one time. And if you want, we're trying to make us sustainable here. And so if we had people that bought in and uh, did $25 a month, over the course of a year, you give 15 people clean water for the rest of their lives. Wow. And the reason that is is because we train up the locals to go out and be able to repair the wells and always be able to serve the community. And so $25 a month goes a real long way. Um, and, yeah, so, brother, I appreciate you so much. I appreciate this you too, so man. Awesome. It's thank always you. always a pleasure having you in here. And thank you very much for the gifts. And please tell your pygmy family, thank you for this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to definitely have this framed. <laughs> Absolutely, man. Thanks. Justin Wren, ladies and gentlemen. Woo-woo! See you guys soon. Bye. Hey, yo. Thank you, everybody, for tuning into the podcast. Uh, thank you to Justin Wren. Thank you to Water4, water4.org, which is uh, the company that's providing those wells. Please go there. And if you can, please donate. Uh, thank you to our sponsors. Thank you to LegalZoom, uh, National Small Business Month at LegalZoom right now. Go there and download your free business startup kit. That's LegalZoom.com forward slash startup. Thank you to The Black Tux. Get $20 off your first purchase at TheBlackTux.com forward slash Rogan. That's TheBlackTux.com forward slash Rogan for $20 off your purchase. Thank you to Lyft. Go to Lyft.com forward slash Rogan today and you can get a $500 new driver bonus. That's Lyft, L-Y-F-T dot com forward slash Rogan. And thank you to to Caveman Coffee Company, cavemancoffeeco.com. Go there, use the code word ROGAN, and you'll save 10% off of any of their awesome products, my friends. That's it for this week. That's it for today. Uh, We'll be back next week. Very excited. I have Lawrence Krauss. Uh, He will be here on uh, Monday. That should be a great old time. And uh, lots more coming up. So we'll talk to you soon. Bye. Much love. Mwah.